Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to yet another episode of the Now Mind You podcast. It is Sunday, January 23rd, 2022. I'm TJ. I'm Matt. And today we'll be covering, in terms of our manga roundup, Hajime no Ippo, Sakamoto Days, Ayashiman, Jujutsu Kaisen, My Hero Academia, and of course, Dragon Ball Super. We also have a few combat sports cards to cover in UFC 270, and of course, the Showtime boxing event that occurred last night. And finally, we'll tie it all up with our topic of the week, which is... The topic of the week this week is your favorite arc in Dragon Ball. Nice. Um, we got a lot to cover, so I'm going to jump right in. We're going to start with Hajime no Ippo. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> this was chapter 1367. Uh, or around 1367. It's the longest fight of all time. <laughs> and um, uh, just to kind of pick up where we left off, we're still in the middle of Mashiba's uh, title eliminator fight. So where we left off, he was kind of still struggling with Garcia. And he's seeing all of these openings for all of the dirty tactics that he used to use before. Yep. Uh, so where we pick up is he's starting to get frustrated and he's starting to, you know, tell himself he's about to take this guy to hell. And the last, mm, I don't want to say two chapters, but the last chapter or so we've been seeing Epo was like struggling to get something out, struggling to say something. And we're watching as Epo and Miata are both waiting to see what Mashiba is going to do. Mashiba has like, it's not animalistic look in his eyes like this dude's not leaving this ring in one piece and Ipo finally lets out what he's been trying to let out which was support for Mashiba saying Mashiba you can still do it because he you know he's been struggling and with that the rest of the crowd gets behind him and the crowd gets behind him gets behind him gets behind him and right when we think Mashiba's about to do something dirty that uh he does a pretty good job of like kind of throwing us off right mm-hmm. like giving us the idea that Mashiba's about to stomp and you know probably kick this guy's ankle in stomp on his foot something like that I mean come on this is think this is Mashiba we're talking about yeah and what he does is he steps in as uh, Garcia steps in and he spins off so he gets his back off of the ropes which you know obviously is a, a thing that you would see in boxing and I always mm-hmm. love how they implore real boxing techniques and things like that within the, uh, the manga but he uses that to get his back off of the ropes and the crowd is behind him and Mashiba for whatever reason can't seem to like grasp the fact that the crowd is supporting him he's like what is this noise that I'm hearing <laughs> yeah. and the crowd is cheering his name such and you know a foreign what I mean? concept to him. It's a yeah. foreign concept to this guy because he's been, you know, the bad guy for most of the time. I mean, yeah. you know, it's the lovable bad guy, but, you know, for the most part, he's not used to that. And it's only here recently that, you know, Mashiba is still kind of starting to get used to having support. Mm-hmm. You know, he's used to people writing him off or believing certain things about him. And, you know, to a degree, he would play up to the stereotype people already believed about him in the first place. This already what y'all think of me. Forget it. You know? Yeah. So. To see that and to see this evolution and this growth of Mashiba was really cool. It was also cool to see him utilize a real technique and utilize technique that would be smart given the the game plan of his opponent who was like, you know, just trying to get in tight and get to his body. Yeah. Mashiba turned and uh, angled his body off more sideways Mm -hmm. um, to create a smaller target. 
And especially considering the style that he fights where he lets off that flicker stance, that's all the flicker jab. That's like the perfect stance to let that punch go from. Mm -hmm. And what he did was he let jabs go, knowing that Daniel was going to try to come in. He faked him. And we're believing Garcia is about to come over the top. But what you don't see, and it's always, that's really a really cool thing that the author always does with Hajime no Ipo. They always put a lot of drama about what you don't see or what you missed or what you're yeah. not paying attention to. And, and Garcia trying to rush in and cut the distance. He didn't notice Mashiba set him up for uh, an uppercut with his right hand, yep. which is obviously also his power hand. Mm-hmm. And man, he essentially ducks right into it. And we see in the very final panel of the <laughs> chapter, his neck is, you know, snapped completely up and, it takes one of his feet off of the ground. Yeah. So Mashiba is now, he's entered the chat, man. He's part of this, this title eliminator. So yeah, that pretty much uh, sums up 1367. Uh, going forward, I think, you know, obviously we're going to continue to go forward with the fight. But man, uh, we didn't get a ton of action in this chapter, but it's you could still feel the intensity of mm-hmm. like the fight like you felt like you couldn't breathe because you like you were as you're going from panel to panel page to page you're like is he about to do another you know is he about to do something dirty i mean you're like epo on the edge of your seat right yeah. like like epo is a perfect representation but i feel like us readers feel like um yeah so that pretty much covers uh hajimino epo for this week and with that, I'm gonna pass it over to you, TJ, and cover uh, Sakamoto days. Wait, hold on, bro. I had some thoughts on Epo too. Oh, I, I didn't know who <laughs> had those, bro. bro. I had, I had some thoughts chilling. on Epo too, bro. You no, was bro. chilling. No, bro. I had to I give thought, my, you my know, bad. I had to give my boy the platform, but I had some yeah. thoughts, homie. Like, like, my bad, my bad, like, my bad. Go ahead. No, I love Epo just as much as you do. Hey, hold on now. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, I was gonna say, um. It reminds me when I was reading this chapter, I thought of a conversation we had recorded, uh, or maybe maybe we didn't record it, but like we we had had to talk about this too. But it feels like this fight in particular was to highlight Mashiba's evolution, not as a boxer per se, although you did see him evolve mid-fight, but mostly like a new type of maturity. It would have been very like like um, two chapters ago. I think that was that was uh, either episode one or yeah, I think it was episode one when we talked about this, where it felt like it was him grappling with his former badass self, right? Um, right. He's got the angel and the devil on the shoulder. I think there was a chapter called like the Devil's Whispers or something like that, right? He is mm-hmm. literally grappling with that temptation. And here we see him overcome this temptation. And I, the reason why I, I highlight it as maturity is because Mashiba has a flashback, essentially not like a, a not like a, a full visual flashback, but like it's it's very basically verbal in his own self monologue, right? His internal monologue, where he's like, "Yo, last time I I succumbed to the temptation, my boxing license got taken away. I disappointed a whole bunch of people. I set my career back. I refused to like." essentially go down the same pathway again i gotta move past this now instead of me you know taking out his ankle taking away one of his scholarships why don't i just um 
think back to my fight. <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what it yeah, is. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, I <laughs> like, know what's up. That's just hilarious. Think back to like my fight with Ipo when I fought an infighter. Think back to my fight with Miata when I fought like probably one of the most elite uh outboxers in this manga within like the Japanese circuit, right? Um, and he comes up with that solution to Garcia or that solution to deal with the problem that is Garcia, right? Like you said sets up that 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 fake then boom catch them with the uppercut and i wrote in my notes too it's like the baiting with that high guard to the uppercut was a work of art like there's something about the artwork in epo where it's just never bad um but that hit was hella clean i still feel like it's just a panel but like that hit was super clean. I don't, and also the reason why I'm like going like, it's just a panel where I was like, we have to remember too that Garcia was uh, a title holder, right? Yeah. So like, we don't know how resilient he can, we don't know what his chin is like going into this. We don't know how resilient he can be. So I'm on the, I'm, I'm hoping that that was it. That was the hit that did it. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if the fight isn't over just yet. Oh, I'm sure the fight's not over. I, right. But in, in my opinion, it's Mashiba. You know, I mean, it's a fight, right? And yeah. he had to uh, get some respect. I yeah. think that uppercut was there to get some respect. Yeah. And it's going to kind of deter him from trying to come in so low. Right. Uh, because if you know you got that to worry about, you know, you don't want to dip into an uppercut. Yeah. Yeah. Probably like going to like double or quadruple the, the power of that hit if you're also like driving yourself into it Correct. um and then as you were speaking i thought the panel where mashiba says hell looks like some straight out of berserk right? like his eyes didn't even oh like you said it was gosh, animalistic man. it didn't he didn't even look human um but yeah good chapter good chapter anything yeah. you want to you want to say matt before i go into sakamoto uh no 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 i pretty much got it all out man Nice. They, um, it's another great chapter, you know. Just I'm, I'm ready to see how to. Re- no, you know what? I do have one other thing that I thought about. But I thought about this as you were uh, just giving your thoughts a second ago. It, when you really think about it, uh, Mashiba is the only other person that's fought as many people within that same circle, or mm-hmm. just about the same people. You know, as many people within their circle as Epo. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that he spars with um, Itagaki. Right. He's fought Miata. He's fought Epo. And if I'm not mistaken, I mean, not even not mistaken, he has had his run-ins with uh with Sendo also. Like true. He's kind of just crossed fists with everybody and Samawara. Yeah. You know, he has a lot of he fights a lot of the same guys that Epo fights as well. Um, I just think it's an interesting thing. I never really thought about that until just now, but they they share a lot of common uh opponents. That just made me think, this will be my final thought, that just made me think they're setting up a lot of these characters for yet another evolution. And if we're seeing another evolution in their prowess, right, when it comes to the combat of boxing, the combat sport of boxing, the martial art of boxing, do you get the sense that there has to be some type of rematch? Um, And I I say this because there's no way Ebo is not going to get back into the ring. They're 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 setting us up for it, right? They're saying it's like, oh, mm-hmm. he's still carrying these weights. He's still training. Now he's got the analytical perspective from coaching. We've, we've got to see an evolution there. Mashiba, he just evolved in this chapter. It's no longer just pure violence. It's like, 
let me draw from my past experiences and develop a new strategy on the fly. Let me let me ascend past this problem. Let me not just give into temptation, right? Uh, Miata, I still feel like it might be somewhat of a question mark. And we've talked about this in our own private convos, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he's there's no reason for him to still be OPBF champ. Uh, he needs to move on to the world. That's Miata. But Sendo, like I mean the 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 Mexico arc. Right. Like and then yeah. uh, when we watched. Um, oh, man, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. But uh, remember, like the last fight, uh, it was one of Sendo's junior members and uh, homie. who Imai. Played, Imai. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. Imai. Right. Like Imai mm-hmm. is a problem that Ipo will have to face if he has, if he has to go back up the rankings. But like, yeah, like there I, I feel like we, we have to see some type of rematch. Maybe maybe it'll be the thing that ends the series. Although I I don't know if Epo is ever going to end, and I say this with a smile on my face. I don't want it to end. Um, right. But I I I think some of these, especially with all their evolutions, like they need to be revisited. Um, that's all I got, man. All right, well, yeah, you go ahead and take us take us away. Are, are you good now? My bad, I because I talked <laughs> on earlier. You good? You yeah, it? I'm good. I got it all out, bro. I got it all, all out. Right. My spirit is at rest. All right, all right. <laughs> here, uh, going into Sakamoto Days, chapter fifty-five, uh, ap- aptly titled "Break." Um, so, if you remember last panel, it ended with uh, Old Man Katana and slur gaku uda and i guess sakamoto and shin right um right destroying the japanese assassin association building and we had a bit of a time skip now i think uh i i can't speak for matt um i think i thought it was going to be a bigger time skip than what we got Mm -hmm. in this chapter um but we had a time skip nonetheless and it it time skipped to, uh, for one, well, we saw the New Year's celebration between, uh, I guess it was like kind of starting on a lighthearted note, right? Uh, right. Sakamoto, Lu, Shin at the temple, like kind of getting their New Year's blessings going, right? And then uh, we, I guess that might have been like a, a time jump backwards. And then we jumped mm-hmm. to the present where we see Sakamoto in the hospital. Shin is like kind of like on the outside of the hospital room. Like he's a little embarrassed because he thought he was a burden to Sakamoto in the last battle. Um, and then we get a visit from uh, some of the, the pros, like Sakamoto's old teammates in Nagumo and Hio. And what it comes down to is like, they're low key kind of checking in on Sakamoto, but also Sakamoto may have called them in because he needs a favor, right? Um, Sakamoto basically tells him like, hey, I, I tussled with uh, X, uh, slur and i know his real identity he's uzuki right uh and i thought it was interesting because this might be the first time we've seen nagumo express something other than oh i don't i don't know if happy go lucky is the right word but you, he's that character yeah. where you know what i mean like he's that character where he always has like the smile eyes mm-hmm. but will wreck your shit you know like like nothing faces him type happy go luckiness but yeah he's always smiling done. Yeah, he's exactly. always smiling. He's always very nonchalant. Yeah, exactly. Nonchalant is the right word. And but he make no mistake, he's one of the most powerful characters uh, in this series today. Today, mm-hmm. we don't know what the future holds. Right. Uh, so him and Hio, who, by the way, uh, the character designs in this series are interesting. Like Hio, like you can just imagine, like imagine like 
uh, metal. I don't know if you want to call them like like braids or spikes or whatever in his hair, but the dude's got like metal chains on his face. Definitely has rings on his hands, piercings all over the place. Um, and this is important because of what happens in a little bit, right? But uh, Sakamoto gives them that information on like X's true identity. Hio kind of disregards it, saying like, "Oh, if he were someone of significance, I would have known about him way back in the day." Right? Then it gets to Sakamoto's favor. Sakamoto would like to get as much information as he can uh, uh, from the the JAA so he can mount some type of counterattack on Slur, basically. And this is where Hio gets a little pissed off, and he reminds Sakamoto, "Like, hey, you left this life. You have a family now." we're not cool bro like you can't just do what you want like you need to respect the fact that we let you leave out of this life don't try to intrude again and it turns into a fight it turns into a brawl inside of a hospital mind you which is like i was surprised there weren't as like i'm surprised there wasn't any security being called over or anything like that but to be fair too it's like we don't know if this was a regular ass hospital or if it was a hospital associated with the assassination association. Like right, that was yeah. never really clarified. Um, so this is, this might just be like another, another Tuesday for them. We don't know. Right. Um, but yeah, like Hio starts fighting Sakamoto, Sakamoto, who's still recovering. Like he's got some bandages and, you know, they show like he's still in recovery mode or whatever. Um, Sakamoto holds his own and ends up leveraging the MRI against, uh, Hio to kind of slow him down and Sagamoto basically says please like you know a man's got to be able to defend his his family right and it flashes back to slur you know threatening Sakamoto's family and that like just putting Sakamoto in a rage and he's able like Hio kind of does the whole like the bashful like listen I'm not gonna say anything but I'm gonna say something you know I don't really like you. we're not cool but I'm gonna help you out. You did say please, you know, <laughs> like right. Right. He's like, I don't know I, nothing, but yeah, if but, I knew something, <laughs> right, right, right. He had some of the all right. Go to the JCC, which I can't remember if they ever said what JCC stands for. I can't remember right now. I'll definitely go back and look it up if I can. Um, but like, go to the JCC and find out this data on the individual you're looking for. They probably have the data on Slur or Uzuki that you need. Chapter ends with. Sakamoto and Shin on the rooftop. Um, Sakam- Shin basically says, like, yo, my bad for not visiting earlier or not going into the room earlier. I was there the whole time. But, like, you know, I felt bad. That was a burden to you. And Sakamoto basically says, although he thinks it because, you know, Shin can read minds. Uh, he says, like, yo, if it weren't for you, I would have lost my head. You helped me keep my cool in the midst of that battle. And it ends with them saying, like, hey, all right, on to the JCC. Looks like we're starting a new arc, you know. Um, so it's like, yeah, I thought the title of the chapter, calling it a break, was good too, because it kind of gave us a bit of an update. Saw some some old characters, right, that like kind of tie into Sakamoto's past once again, and we're we're just setting up the new arc. Um, right. It was it was a good chapter, man. I liked it, and I I thought it was uh, kind of telling too that Nagumo's like eyes were open when he found out uh, X's identity. Like, I really mm-hmm. am hoping for that flashback. What'd you think, man? Um, you know, <laughs> the first thing that came to me with that was this dude has three names. Yeah. <laughs> X, Slur, Izuki. Yeah. Um, but you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, it's an it's a manga, so it is what it is. But mm-hmm. I did think something was interesting. So, well, before I get to that, 
uh, was it just me or did Heo? Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Heo. Heo. He gave me like Jujutsu Kaisen like vibes just with his character design. Like, yeah. He looks. Yeah. It was like, is this another Zenin? Did they cross over? <laughs> oh, that's um, funny. That's yeah. Really he just, funny. his his design to me just felt kind of Jujutsu Kaisen ish, at least more in line with how some of those characters look. But then again, uh, We've talked about this before. Sakamoto in Sakamoto days, they do a lot of like really contrasting and clashing like kind of art styles. Mm-hmm. So, um, but something that I thought was interesting was uh, they brought up the people that were top of the class. They said it was Sakamoto, Nagumo, and uh, Akayo, Akao. How do you say his name? Akao, Akao, I think. Now, when they said when they had his name in there there was no picture of him yeah it was just like a empty empty silhouette yeah yeah uh i don't remember reading or ever seeing that name prior to this so now we got another character that we're gonna have to eventually learn about yeah um yo what if that's old man katana no i'm kidding (laughs) i mean hey it could be though you never know as crazy as this universe is it very well could be yeah um you know because again he was just like oh well if because again you know they said if slur was in your class but he wasn't a big deal like how was he a big deal now yeah it's also kind of what they're getting at to yeah. a degree yeah um so yeah man i'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with that going forward mm-hmm. um but i thought it was i agree with you i thought it was a good chapter um they're gonna have to go to that data bank and figure out what else is going on so yeah i thought that was cool yeah no um i agree and again i know i'm gonna sound like a broken record listeners but only 55 chapters you can still get in on this it's not still get in on this uh this this is still early yeah yeah 100 percent. all right Um, and speaking of still early (laughs) uh we're gonna start talking about aishiman beautiful segue nine chapters <laughs> so it's not too late it's not even double digits yeah you know get in get get on get on the train there's still plenty of room mm-hmm. uh i'm i'm going for aishima early uh it, it's i i've been swept up by it um picking up where we left off we're now on chapter nine and our uh, protagonist maro is still fighting chairman dopo and this fight, this uh, the artwork that we see in this fight, um, there's just a lot that happens. Yeah. Essentially, what's going on is this battle is still continuing, and Mauro just keeps getting up. Dopo is doing whatever he wants to do to him, keeps getting up. This kid gets up and does the the order, 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 like tries Fist to of the North him. Star. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> From Fist of the North Star. Yeah. Uh, to Dopo, and he's just like, "All right, kid, stop it," and like. He throws a blizzard at this kid. The kid gets back up. Like, uh, and at a certain point during this point when he uh, summons the blizzard, excuse me, um, when he summons the blizzard, you see uh, Urara loses her knife. Mm-hmm. It gets blown away. And, you know, now it's behind Dopo. And he's like, the knife's mine now. You're going to die. Who gets back up yet again? Morrow punches this guy's head off. 
he turns around and is like, dude, like you're starting to piss me off. Like, head still stop. caved in. Head still caved in. <laughs> yeah. Head caved in, by the way. Blood just rushing down this kid's head. Drops a huge piece of ice on top of Morrow. The ice explodes. Morrow busts out of it. And he's still coming forward. And the other demon, it's kind of like, you know, their little, their little sidekick, 10. He's like, yo, are you sure this kid is just human? bro like because again he pulls out another one of these like unrealistic um <laughs> unrealistic feats and what i loved was her response she was like he just really likes manga and <laughs> it cuts to him saying i love manga." <laughs> yeah. and he's essentially like this kid is living his dream of a battle shonen right now because he's <laughs> like i can't lose because they never lose when they fight their first big bat so yeah. i love how like self-aware the manga is too that like yeah chairman dopo is the first big bat yeah so he kind of has to something is gonna have to happen yeah and what we get after that is um we see the 10 grab the knife from behind chairman dopo and 10's you know he has his uh his character growth moment where he realizes you know what I'm going to make choices for myself. I'm not going to just be scared. And Arara tells him to open a knife and he opens it. And boom, boy, when he opens it, we see Arara's true form, uh, which is what Dopo was trying to avoid. And we see something pick up Morrow when, as he's laying there unconscious, having, you know, uh, essentially a small glacier dropped on his head. <laughs> yeah. Um, she has now taken her Aishimon form, which is like, I would say like a, a fox with six eyes. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the most apt way to describe it. And she's about to go and, you know, grab the first Aishimon that we saw. Well, not the first, but the first larger Aishimon we saw Marl uh, defeat earlier with her friend. So that's pretty much where the chapter leaves off. But I thought it was a great chapter. Um, now I'm more interested to see what she can do. And obviously we're going to have to, we're going to start getting more information about Morrow and like why he can do what he can do. It's not just because he loves manga. Like yeah. there's obviously a deeper reason to it. So yeah. But, but yeah, man, that's pretty much my thoughts on the chapter. How, how were you feeling about it? Oh, uh, I'm just going to pick off a pick up from right. What you uh, just said too, like, cause they even flash back to his trauma his childhood trauma mm -hmm. of his like dad beating him right so it's like it's like i love manga but like why does he love manga so much because it's all he had as an escape right like as his dad was beating him you know like there's a scene of him essentially sleeping outside well i don't even know if he was sleeping or if he was just like in pain you know yeah. like in pain outside like just trying to escape from his dad like there was food like by some garbage and there was also a shonen jump and he was just reading it and like obviously that was his escape right and then of course if you go back to like the earlier chapters too when it talks about how he developed his strength like you know but this flashback in particular just talked about like really like what the cause the core of this level of manga kind of comes from and it comes from that trauma he experienced right mm -hmm. um and I mean, looking at my notes um, I thought it was really funny too when she said he just really likes manga because when you look at like the way she's drawn, there's uncertainty. Like mm -hmm. she's not even sure if he's human. <laughs> like, like she was the one who told us readers, like, oh, he's probably just one of those once in a century 
natural born, you know, yeah. demon slayers, basically, right? Um, yeah. And yeah, even she was like, you know what, bro, I'm not that sure. And I agree too. Like this chapter was a really good character development chapter for ten, um, and just gave us a little bit more into like how much of a problem Chairman Dopo is. Um, but that whole thing about the knife, the dagger, and when he's like, I knew it, or like, even before he said, I knew it after he saw her full form, her full Ayashiman form, and by her, I mean Arara, um, mm-hmm. he mentioned something about like, the knife is mine, I got to kill you. I'm paraphrasing, right? But right. he says something along those lines, like, no, I got to kill you. I got to take that knife, which is making me think, and here I go theorizing again, nine chapters in, but uh, yes, that knife is her inheritance she had it this whole time um is there something about that knife that makes you like the legitimate chairman of the enma syndicate like was 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 like dopo's leadership questioned or will it add something to his leadership if he has that knife i don't know but it makes me think about that right like why Mm -hmm. he was so intent on killing her and taking that knife away um and of course with the last few panels um we see her like six-eyed fox form which i agree matt that's like the best way to describe it the most apt way to describe it um but it looks like they're going to rescue hashihime and mm-hmm. you know yeah, thank you for the name by the way <laughs> no no problem and it makes me think that hashihime has to be like the next person in the crew right like yeah. the, the beauty of this manga is like for one it's in its infancy and the way it's set up the way like Urara has her mission of like building her own syndicate setting, like putting her stamp on Kabuki Cho. Um, we're going to have like, like there's no way that you won't have a separate plot of the crew having to expand or them gathering allies. And I like that Hashihime is going to be their next ally. Um, did I have any other notes? Oh, I did. And it also has to do with uh, the knife being unsheathed by 10, but you know, Urara unleashing her powers. It's like, this is another instance where we see her cold facade crack again, right? Mm-hmm. Like, remember, she was like all business. She's like, no, y'all are just some expendable pawns in my game, in my long game. But it's like, no, she, we're starting to see that she cares for them beyond just them helping her achieve her birthright. It's like yeah, she man. genuinely has feelings for them. Like, I don't think she would have been that quick to unsheath the knife had Maro not been in danger like he was. Um Correct yeah, me if I'm wrong. Desperation. Yeah, like correct me if I'm wrong. Wasn't there a panel where it's like we saw like the icicles kind of piercing Maro's back too? Or was I yeah? Sure, yeah, like he was like, dude was going through it. We don't even know like what the what what his state is. Like he could be critically wounded for all we know. Uh, because that was not that was a rough fight. He kept getting back up, but it's like, bro, you're you're taking some hits and the first line I wrote in uh, in my notes was like, Maro takes his first L, but I kind of want to redact that. I don't know if this counts as his first L. You know what I mean? Because on the, on the mental tip, did he ever give up? No. Did he ever admit defeat? No. His body may have given out, but it's like, I feel like if we had a few more pages or a few more panels, he would have undoubtedly gotten up again. And at that point, um, Urara would have intervened regardless. Had he been conscious or unconscious, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. If, yeah. I don't know if we can really label it his first all, although like all things considered, it kind of is. I don't know 
if we can get in terms of him entering the Ayashimon world. I don't know if we can consider that his like first. Uh, I think he's gonna be back. He's gonna get his rematch. Um, and that's all I got on Ayashimon. Get in, what folks. I'll, what I'll say to that is, uh, I'll show more of my uh, my nerd hand here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like he didn't lose. It's like uh, it's like he was he was booked. He's still booked strong. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like he passed out. He wasn't beaten. He passed out from blood loss. He was still yeah. attempting to fight. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, that's just how I look at it. So I think they did a good job of like, he still hasn't officially taken an L. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I thought they wrote that pretty well. Um, but yeah. Uh, it's back on you, my guy. Would you like to take us into Jujutsu Kaisen? Yes, sir. With chapter 172. Tokyo number one colony part 12, right? Uh, this is part 12. <laughs> so it's yeah, like, it's like this, we've been in this calling game on just one colony for at least 12 chapters, y'all. Um, shit, like what do I, I I'm I'm almost like I don't even know if I want to give a recap because it's it's the same fight. <laughs> like it's literally the same fight between our boy uh Megumi and Reggie Star. Shout out Reggie Star for having a fantastic name. But Reggie Star, uh, things didn't go your way, homie. All right, so last chapter, what panel did it end on? Megumi is saying, like, you know, uh, there are shadows up above us. I'm paraphrasing, but basically saying there are shadows up above, above us. And, you know, the giant elephant Shikigami was up there waiting for him, right? So this chapter, we start off with them literally being under pressure. Uh, shout out queen right but they are literally they are literally under pressure and i like how this chapter begins with it basically explaining like all right g-forces and that's like g-forces if you are a fighter pilot right how you have to undergo that training or you're an astronaut like how the human body can only like uh withstand up to a certain point right and then it changes over to the current situation where we got the elephant shikigami up above uh, Megumi and Registar are being weighed down by the elephant Shikigami, and they're also being weighed down by the sedans that Registar had uh, used, I want to say, in the previous chapter, right? And no, it was definitely the previous chapter, because that was the one where we had the most explanation. I remember, like, we both had to reread that a few times, right? Because to truly understand, too, like, how Megumi's uh, cursed energy works, Right. And, and just to jump in real quick. Go ahead, my guy. Yet again, in the beginning of this chapter or just in this chapter, period, it's another one where it's like reading is very fundamental to the what the rest of this chapter is going to be. So yes. Yes. It's it's, it's very uh, it kind of caught me off guard that it was like I was like, wait, what's happening right yeah. now? Yeah. Uh, when I was reading it and I was like, oh, OK, this is informing me on what is about to take place in this chapter. But yes. Continue. Yes. 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 And getting into that, too. Right. So we start off with the explanation of G forces and how much the human body can stand. And then they go on to explain the reason why Megumi isn't like dying right now or passed out is because he was reinforced his the lower half of his body with cursed energy. So instead of the blood all pooling to the bottom of his body where, you know, he would undoubtedly pass out, you know, who knows, maybe even worse, um, he's able to keep his blood circulating, but still he's under quite a bit of pressure. Reggie Starr, on the other hand, I don't know, I don't think they said that he had reinforced his lower half, but you can see he's like, he's already got some several cracks in his heel and in his femur. 
um, from withstanding all this pressure. So another thing to note about this chapter is, and actually something to call out, and I think um, I called this out with Matt offline, like off, off uh, recording, but if you guys are listeners are paying attention, if you've been reading along with us, right, you'll notice that the past few chapters since uh, Megumi has been fighting Registar, we're not really getting insight into Megumi's thoughts. We will get the occasional thing, but just like how Megumi is very uh, a man of few words, right? We're also getting the perspective like he's a man of very few thoughts too. And we're really just seeing this battle through Registar's eyes. If you think about it, right? We're getting Registar's mm-hmm. thought process. We're seeing, um, we're seeing like him go through all these outcomes and scenarios. Like he's literally debating about what to do next. Should I pull out my trump card? Will I have enough time? do I pull out my trump card and potentially get like swallowed by this shadow? If I get swallowed by the shadow, will I be able to breathe? Is it just like water? What if I defeat him? I get swallowed up by the shadow. Will I die in this curse energy? Will I be like, what happens? So it's like Reggie star is going through all these scenarios in his head. And then he finally decides to then pull out his trump card at some point, which ends up being a house, which is like 30 tons. Right. So it's like, okay, at this point, He's got our dude. He pulled out a house. He pulled out the the, the 30 ton trump card. And actually, uh, before I jump too far ahead, there was a little bit of a funny bit where he's like, all right, let me reconstruct this receipt. And as he says it, you just see the elephant land on him, right? Yeah, so, man. so he gets swallowed into the shadow anyway, right? But calls up one of his cards, uses a card, uh, uses a card to help him float back up to the top and you know, kind of breach out of the shadow realm. Uh, shout out Yu-Gi-Oh, but, but like I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna kind of call it the Shadow Realm, right? I mean, so shit, then, that's what it was. That's basically. that's literally what it was, right? And so then he pulls out his actual trump card, which is the house, right? So he had a receipt for a house in there, and so we see this house materialize, no foundation, just up in the air, dropping toward Registar, and in particular toward Megumi. What does Megumi do in response? He cancels his domain expansion, which truly isn't like a 100% domain expansion, but it's more like a, a cursed energy booster, right? Mm-hmm. He drops the domain, lets the house crash because I don't know how much reconnaissance Megumi had done, but I feel like Gege Akutami is writing this in such a way that we think he must have scoped out this gymnasium, right? Because what's underneath the basketball court? A pool. So it, the house breaks through the floor of the gym, sends everybody into the pool right, where immediately Megumi is on uh, Registar's back and starts going for a rear naked choke, and Reggie's like, no, why is he so strong? He's not necessarily just strong. It's like Megumi, remember, he also has the the pressure of all those things inside of his shadow, and Reggie is like on the receiving end of that, so he's like choking Reggie out with additional strength and pressure and weight. So this was also part of Megumi's strategy because after they get out of the pool, Reggie's like, oh, he must have thought that by him pulling me into this water that my receipts would be useless. And we have another situation where it's like, not only do you need to read all the text in this chapter, but you also have to, like, if especially if, you know, we, we have this recurring theme of Megumi being Mr. Under Promise Over Deliver mm-hmm. and Mr. I'm going to choose my words hella carefully right so we need to pay attention to what megumi says in this panel in particular he's saying yes 
And that well, I'm paraphrasing, this is going to be the exact quote, but he says like, yes, to the whole receipts being wet. And then he says that only leaves us with one option. Some to that, to that effect with ellipses, right? The three periods at the end, he doesn't say that this is only going to be a hand to hand fight from now on. He doesn't say that he just really agrees to the whole receipts being wet thing. So Reggie automatically fills in the blanks like we all do. Like we all mm -hmm. naturally fill in blanks. We all naturally make assumptions. So Reggie's like, all right, he thinks he's got me with the hand-to-hand -hand combat. He thinks this is just going to be a hand-to-hand -hand fight. I know he probably still has some Shikigami left, but da-da-da, right? So they get into their hand-to-hand -hand fight when all of a sudden, boom, a chunk of Reggie Star goes missing. Like part of his face, his ear, deep into like his trap, his shoulder, his clavicle is gone. Mm -hmm. Who's it? It's our it's our Digimon divine dog, right? Like dude <laughs> comes out of nowhere, takes a bite out of crime like McGruff, literally. Yo, for like real. literally, right? And that's how the, the chapter basically ends. Like Megumi's like, the stuff you did before wasn't enough to shut down Divine Dog, bro. Like you thought. Basically, Megumi yeah. says you thought, you know. And the chapter ends with uh Reggie saying something along the lines of, you know, at the end of the day sorcerers are really just con artists and we we hear the sound of like the blood splattering on the floor and of course Registar was kind of like uh wobbly but we don't see the body drop you know this is one of those do we want to make assumptions do we want to be like Registar, or do we want to just be like it's just a panel right and just see what happens next week i'm gonna sound like a broken record Still not a bad chapter. Every chapter is just good. Still not a bad chapter of Jujutsu Kaisen to date. Uh, those are my thoughts, bro. What'd you think, Matt? I think every chapter is good, too. I agree with you. Um, <clears throat> as far as what do I want to say about the end? I don't know, man. It's tough because we just see this huge splatter um, on the ground following what uh, we would be led to believe are his dying words, but who knows? That could just be more blood splatter from him or, right. you know, from how it looks, that could just be, you know, the dog going back into its shadow or yeah. what have you. Yeah. Um, there's any number of things it could actually be. So, you know, we can't just... Uh, you got to take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Right. Um, and yeah, this whole time, we're only really hearing what uh, Reggie Starr is thinking and all of that. At the end of all of that, you know, he tried to make an assumption. He assumed it was one thing and it turned into something else. Megumi still had something up his sleeve like he always had. Yeah. And that's literally the only time he says anything. That yeah. wasn't nearly enough to take out uh Divine Dog. And mm -hmm. that was it. And, you know, what I mean, that's pretty much Megumi. He's, you know, the, the silent guy. You know, yeah. he only talks when he needs to, seems annoyed when he has to talk anyway. And yeah. He gets the job done. So it's just, you know, the Zenny, man, you got to leave them alone. They're not yeah. playing. You got to stop playing with the Zenny, man. This is just the common theme. <laughs> like, like you said last yeah. week, they're starting to look like what clan, Matt? The Uchiha. Yeah. You know what time it is. That's yeah. what they're starting to look like. Yeah. The one the one final note I had, um, this is like more of like a question and like listeners too, please feel free to comment your thoughts. Um, why didn't Reggie start try to heal himself? Cause you know he had he had that one receipt that he used. Uh, I want to say the second chapter into this fight, where it's like he just uh, it was like the spa spa day receipt, where he where he recreated it, 
and it healed him like like that right like snap of a finger it's like did he just have one of those like like it'd be i mean would he have been able to use it though right well i'm I'm just saying like either while like before he said i'm i'm gonna draw my trump card or whatever before the elephant crush him was like why not use it then or like if he has the ability to use them like inside of the shadow realm because that's how he got the car right the car to float him back up or maybe the car was already there i don't know but i feel like he could have used it at some point right especially going into like his whole femur and heel being fractured like you want to wanted to use that then bro i don't know yeah i just feel like he just wasn't in a situation where he could get to it man true i don't don't think he could um megami's like he's just smart he's like I don't know, not to draw another uh, Naruto comparison, but like Shikamaru, you know? Yeah. Just like, just really smart. Yeah. He's like, yeah, that's cool that you know everything. Like, I know a lot of shit too, dog. Yeah. I'm actually 17 steps ahead of you, player. Right. You know? Um, so it, it was cool to see that. And again, like, we see that variation and that difference between, you know, how Megami hand, handles things versus Yuji and versus everybody else. Everyone kind of has their own unique spin to how they fight and how they do things so there's no like one universal way everybody gets anything done right right everybody kind of has their own path and their own way that they you know they take to get you know to get get it working so yeah i 100 agree and that's that's kind of like the beauty of of jujitsu kaisen right and it's another it's another series too where we have like such a strong cast of characters and i think we were talking about this offline again where it's like even the villains are pretty well developed like you don't have any like single use well i mean some of them end up being single use but it's like it, it there's no waste of ink right like like i i yeah. mentioned earlier like we're, we've mostly been watching this battle through reggie's eyes right um reggie's an antagonist in this case and it's been it's been a fun read like it's been i've been hyped on every single chapter and i'm gonna be hyped on the next chapter too and one one last thought and i think this is kind of funny it's like what if reggie can use his healing ticket or his healing receipt because it was like someplace inconvenient like on the small of his back or some shit he couldn't reach <laughs> yeah, yeah like what if what if Damn, only thought about, like, shit, i can't get to it i'm not flex my shoulders are too tight or some shit you know Damn, that was suck. Yeah, yeah. But that's all I have, bro. You want to take us into My Hero? Yeah, man. You know, let's jump into uh, My Hero Academia. So this was My Hero Academia chapter 341. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, so we're starting, I guess, another mini arc or, you know, all of the, everything is part this and part that pretty much at this point because we're at the back end of my hero we're not going to have much more left yeah uh, this one is called the story of how we became heroes part minus one mm-hmm. um so obviously meaning we're going to probably get a part zero part one two three whatever um but this chapter the tone of this chapter more than any other chapter really made me feel like doomsday was on the other side yeah um, you really kind of get that that uh that end game kind of feel like the final battle really really for real like the battle for everything is about to take place. Um, we open up the chapter with seeing some background on Himiko. Um, she goes to revisit her uh, her old home, and 
she has uh, some flashbacks or what have you uh, about, you know, just what her life was like when she was living here. And in the middle of that, once she leaves, Dobby is outside mm-hmm. or, you know, his real name, Tolia, which I guess that's what he's going to go by now. And he just pretty much <laughs> asks her, like, if she's having second thoughts or what have you. And she's like, no, you know, what's going to happen is just what's going to happen. And then Dobby blows her house up. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was like, well, okay. Yeah, if that's how you feel. Yeah. And way to make a point. Yeah, way to make a point. And he's pretty much saying, like, starting tomorrow, the battle is going to happen. Um, you know, so we see him jump out of there and we get a very interesting thing, uh, which I'm kind of on the fence about how I feel, right? We get a new addition of explanation about Himiko's quirk, mm-hmm. um, which as we know, uh, she can copy and mimic people and things like that. As long as she gets a taste of their blood, you know, she right. can turn into them. And as we know, some chapters back twice was killed mm-hmm. and Himiko and twice were really, 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 really close. Yep. And she now has a vial with some of his blood and what, the the point i'm just gonna keep calling him dobby the point dobby makes to him is that if if she has a close feelings for the person whose blood she consumes she can use their quirk um and apparently it's going to be a part of the villain's plan for himiko to be able to utilize twice as quirk not to interject too, like this also ties into what we saw a few chapters back, um, basically in like the the Great Ninja War of my hero, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, well, the I mean it's not going to be the final battle because we're going into that. But uh, remember, listeners, when Himiko was able to use Irara's uh, gravity quirk, right? Um, right? Same thing. Like she's been obsessed with Irara and Deku, so it makes sense that 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 what they've discovered about her like new evolution to her quirk uh applies in this case considering how close she is or how close she was twice my bad man keep going bro no yeah yeah, you good um so i think that that's i think that's going to be an interesting thing and you know it's given us just a little bit more of a look into like what we can possibly expect or just you know giving us the ability to try to theorize what we could possibly expect going forward um, especially considering we know what's happening, like we know where we are. Yep. And then um, after that, they do like a pretty cool transition. And in this um, transition, we see Spinner talking to uh, All For One. Mm-hmm. And he goes to what looks like to be like a uh, a tunnel that's behind this chair off of one is sitting in to go check in on Shigaraki and Shigaraki's arm is doing this, this tattoo shit in this tunnel. Yes. Yes. And it, 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 it sucks back down. Now here's something I thought was interesting. Shit. Yes. I might've, I might've missed this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when Spinner was asking if Shigaraki's going to be all right, he Cause the quirk Shigaraki's body has to adjust to something I hadn't seen yet, unless I unless I'm just somebody that missed it. But he called the quirk Doomsday Theory. Yeah, yeah. I don't think I've I've seen that quirk before either. 
I don't heard know. of it. I yeah. was just like, yo, wait a minute. Is because obviously that, you know, that would mean that that was what they were getting his body ready for. Mm-hmm. Um, they also make one of the guys from that other villain group was talking to Spinner and kind of was suggesting to him in. And this is just me paraphrasing, it, but suggesting to him, essentially, he's kind of become like staying like he has followers now. Yeah. And he has followers not just because of who he is, but because of the type of quirk he has. The heteromorphs. Um, yeah. The heteromorphs are, you know, essentially people who like they can't hide their quirk. Yeah. This is I'm a lizard guy now. Like, that's just what it is. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it was an interesting uh layer to add you know that there's also that level of discrimination as well that these people uh that some people feel like okay they're heroes and they're villains but even these people who are forced to you know look differently because of their quirk they have a level of discrimination that they deal with and that makes them feel less inclined to you know support heroes and things like that so right i thought that was interesting and then you know after that we see uh what i'm assuming to be the villains slash that uh those incomplete no move kind of uh army yeah on its way making its way through some wreckage so you know hopefully next chapter is about to get cracking you know we got we got something going on so uh tj you got any thoughts i do and just to touch on uh what you said about the heteromorphs when you were talking about the level of discrimination i my mind just jumped to oh man this is kind of like x-men um, yeah. a little bit you know um and then <clears throat> i'll just work my way from the back right so there was that and uh what uh shigaraki says you know and i wrote this quote down like know this iguchi everyone can be somebody's hero i forgot that spinner's name was iguchi i had to look mm-hmm. it up like who the hell is iguchi oh it's spinner and then uh for two it made me think like it's kind of on the nose right uh in war every side thinks they're the hero no one thinks they're the villain Every side thinks they're the hero. So I thought uh, that that quote was pretty significant that uh, Shigaraki would say that. And then I also felt a little, maybe, maybe I need to go back and give my hero a reread. Maybe after the series is over, I'll give it a binge. I also agree with you, Matt, at the beginning, like uh, the title of the chapter definitely makes us think, all right, this is the final arc, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, Spinner, his original inspiration was Stain like right. legit like it, down to the way his suit is set up like that that's a stain uh homage and uh you know he said he's given himself to shigaraki or whatever but i was like huh that's that's interesting like that he feels so conflicted when he's been trying to be staying this whole time um <clears throat> for the most part right and then to touch on uh toga and her having that vial of twice his blood I think what's going to happen is she's going to pose us twice and really fuck with Hawks. Um, there's there's no way they're not going to use it as a way to like fuck with Hawks. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like there's got to be that confrontation and it might lead to Hawks' demise. Who knows? Um, if the last big battle between the villains and the heroes was any indication, like you do have deaths in my hero. You do have deaths and you do have consequences and you do have scars. So it's like, just like Belly Laser, Aoyama, is going to have to go through something. I think Hawks is going to have to honestly face some type of retribution or at least answer for what he did to Twice. And yes, Twice is a villain, but the way 
he kind of got set up by Hawks and the way Hawks had to end him. It's like you can you can you can reason you can reason it. You can reason it away. And I'm not saying Hawks was not justified because at the end of the day he was undercover and he was a hero. But I'm these aren't the types of villains who will just, you know, let that slide, especially Himiko and how obsessive she is with people she likes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, think about how much trouble and damage she caused just off of the, the inter-school tournament, right? Um, just like, man, I, I don't, I, I think things aren't going to end well for Hawks. That's all I'm going to say there. Um did I have any other thoughts? <laughs> I thought the tats, the Tetsuo thing you said was hilarious because I had a note <laughs> about that too. Um, and then I was, I'm still not exactly sure how synced up All for One and Shigaraki are, right? Yeah, I'm a little even, confused by that because I was like, are they not sharing the same body? Even that last set of panels where he says like, no, this is Gucci, everyone can be their uh, hero or whatever. It starts off with you seeing all for one at the top, then it switches over to Shigaragi. So it's like, are they speaking same mind, different bodies, or what's going on there? Like, how how far is their link? You know, and I say this too because last chapter you had talked about this, right? The ten kilometer separation thing. Like, mm-hmm. are they? Did they come up with that ten kilometers under the assumption that they haven't linked up psychically yet? Like, I don't know. Uh, I got questions. Is all I'm saying. Um, yeah, I'm I like I like this chapter, well, but that's cool. Yeah, I like this chapter. I, I know they'll probably reveal the answer to that in some way, shape, or form. But it's a good ass chapter. Yeah, man, it was a great chapter. I, I uh, you know, it's it's a great chapter, and it's a, it was a good step forward, and it feels like we're finally, finally gonna get to it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go I mean, take us a oh, go, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, before we go into the next one, there's one more thing, too, especially involving the, the panel with the heteromorphs and some of the Nomu marching. Um, where exactly are we timeline wise? Uh, because if if and I know they'll probably <clears throat> talk about this slash reconcile it in the next few chapters, right? Horikoshi has to, but like if they're already on the march with this phase of their plan, you know that the heroes were uh you know, undergoing crunch time. I'm just trying to figure out what the timelines are for like, you know, the heroes to leverage their plan, which, you know, included and involved, well, involved belly laser. Um, mm-hmm. And what's the timeline with that, with what we're seeing in this last panel here? Um, I'd like, yeah, I'd right. also like the answer for that. Um, right. That makes sense. Yeah. All right. Um. Yeah, on, no, 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 go ahead. Let's let's jump right to it. Let's go. Now, this one we're doing together. On to the OGs of OGs. Uh, and we say this only because, yes, Super is new. We know Super is new. But Dragon Ball isn't, right? Yeah. Dragon Ball is the OG series on our on our series that we like to talk about here on Now Mind You. Uh, Dragon Ball Super 80 dropped on the 20th. Uh, that was this past Thursday at the time of this recording. And we see Gas versus Granola Part 2. Um, man, man, this was, this was a good chat. I'm going to give a brief plot summary, uh, summary real quick. (laughs) I'm going to give a brief, I'm like tripping over my words because there's so much to talk about in this chapter. 
Uh, Matt and I were talking about this yesterday. There's so much to talk about in this chapter, but essentially continuation of the fight between Granola versus Gas. And the chapter starts off with you seeing Monaito kind of healing Vegeta in the background as Granola and Gas are fighting. And Granola's putting in that work, like he's mastered instant transmission, but Gas is no slouch either. And he starts trying to find a counter to it. But uh, Granola just proves to be the better user, like, or at least in terms of adapting to the newfound power, Granola has done a better job, right? Um, mm-hmm. The use of instant transmission, the use of clones, low-key shadow clones, right? Because uh, even the way that I like, get defeated is very reminiscent of Naruto. But uh, I guess to the point where, like, Granola leverages his shadow clones to create an opening to throw a direct attack. Now, even though oatmeal's on his, uh, would be his right eye, if you look at it from like Renault's perspective, oatmeal's on, or is oatmeal on his left eye? Either way, he's got oatmeal on one of his eyes. Remember that this is full power granola still, so he's got both of the sniper eyes, both of the sniper eyes on each eye. So it's like when they have both sniper eyes, at least the Cerulean's, right? They're able to unlock their full power in terms of their sniper blast. So he hits him with a like 360 no scope, right to like uh uh gases like torso and he takes gas out like to the point where the other heaters are looking on like shit did he just really lose and you know everybody's like all right so this is going to be a wrap everybody's like low-key like that celebratory phase or almost at that celebratory phase and then comes in elec the leader of the heaters um the man we've never seen flustered the man that remember he's the one made the wish on the Dragon Balls that uh, Monaito was the one safeguarding, but he's the one who made that wish for Gas to be the strongest in the universe, at least we think, right? We still don't know the full context of that wish. And I really hope we get some type of flashback in later chapters about that. Um, Alex steps in and tells Gas like, hey, come on, bro. This isn't you. You're not using your full powers right now. I think you're at a stage where you can like break the seal and release your inner nature. And he reaches for, uh, I don't want to call it a tiara, but <laughs> they low-key got it as a tiara, but he reaches for- Reaches for his headdress. He reaches for his headdress. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Matt. All right. He reaches for his headdress and rips it off. Now, I didn't know, and I'm sure Matt didn't know that this headdress turns out it was like a power dampener or restrictor. Because once the headdress is pulled off, the other heaters, Oil and the fat dude, I can't remember his name right now, but they they start panicking like, hey, what are you doing? Like, we have our, our race has a tendency to lose itself when we liberate our inner nature. And Elec is still not worried. And we see Gas undergo a transformation very similar to an uh, legendary Super Saiyan, Ultra Super Saiyan, Broly type transformation, but for the heaters race. Um, Tusk slash horns grow out the side of his head and he just looks like like a monster right uh he like his eyes turn completely white that's why i got the broly vibes he's got those horns and he's like feral um like if you look at a few panels like there's like spit flowing out of his mouth like he can't control himself can't really distinguish between friend or foe and immediately gives granola that word like beats granola and granola was already in a state of um pain because whenever he splits himself into clones 
unlike the shadow clone jutsu from naruto he actually feels the pain that his clones feel and that shit gets amplified when he's all back together again so he's already suffering through that gas gets this like ridiculous power up gives him that work and basically just dispatches gas we're, we're not i don't think gas is dead but he's no longer in this fight um and uh, you know the heaters or at least oil and her her fat brother try to stop gas and to no avail he's not able really to distinguish between friend or foe at this point so anybody can get it uh then we see gas turn his attention to uh the saiyans and munaito and makes quick work of them however well makes quick work of vegeta which i well, kind of thought yeah i well matt you thought it was both i kind of thought it was funny in the sense that like the the way it was drawn i was like fuck this dude in particular but i agree it was yeah, it both. was funny i just hate it, seeing my boy yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah he's taking too many l's and we're finally getting like an a developed vegeta right mm-hmm. um and yeah he makes quick work of vegeta and goku enters the chat it's now gas versus goku and we see gas get a flashback right a flashback to when uh he fought bardock now before that i skipped over one important element too right uh when gas goes berserker monaito's like oh shit this is the same form i saw 40 years ago when bardock uh and them were fighting the heaters right well it was like bardock versus gas and Vegeta's like, all right, do you remember what happened? Like, what eventually defeated uh, this man? And Manito's like, I was unconscious. And when I read that, listeners, I was like, what the fuck, man? That's awfully convenient. Um, and actually, Matt, uh, just to remind you, like, you have a really good theory that uh, everybody should hear uh, mm-hmm. in a little bit. Uh, in, in concerns, like, like, in regards to what happened between Bardock and uh, Gas, that would have caused Gas to be defeated and scarred for life, right? Because he was scarred for life. To the point where he sees Goku, who looks exactly like his dad. He, he flips completely he, out. He freaks out, gets scared, acts like he got hit, and literally scurries away. And that's when Elec enters the chat again and says, hey, uh, you said you would never lose again. And a true, ultimately powerful being would be able to get their powers under control, would be able to get their fear under control. And this is where we see gas slim down, like steam coming off of him. He still has his horns. This is important to note. He still has his horns, but now it's like his demeanor has changed. Um, I thought it was very reminiscent of the Super Saiyan God transformation um, in the sense that he looked even more, and he he also like uh, 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 re-manifested uh, or at least brought back into reality or at least summoned his clothing again. But it, it made me think Super Saiyan God because he was like, very like skinnier looking and slender looking compared to what he was when he was fighting with uh granola early on um and then another thing i thought that was worth noting too is like at this point like gas was no longer using his like telekinesis slash uh material manifestation ability anymore it was really like hand-to-hand and energy blasts uh mm-hmm. at this point in the fight between him and granola um any other notes i had no i'm gonna let you go ahead man i, I want to hear what you have to say too then we i really enjoyed back. i really really enjoyed the chapter um i'm really liking the action i like that i like for a second that we're gonna we're breaking off a little bit from goku and vegeta yeah uh doing everything and we got another guy that is 
fighting with unfavorable odds, but somehow was still going to make it happen or it's mm-hmm. going to have to try to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as the Bardock and Goku thing, uh, we're starting to see this a little more often, right? Like yeah. uh, with these type of flashbacks and things, um, we're starting to see that a little bit more uh, where we have, uh, where we have, people seeing Bardock when they see Goku. Yeah. And, you know, there's always this thing, especially because we have to go with, you know, everything that's canon. Goku knows nothing about his past. Nothing. He just found out his dad's name, like, yeah, he earlier in this arc. He's just learned his dad's name. He didn't even know his father's name. Um, So that's an interesting thing to note. And as far as... Uh, that that Namekian, his name is Minato. Mm-hmm. As far as the Namekian is concerned, I believe what happened when, at least when Gas fought Bardock, because we have to remember, uh, one thing that yeah, I guess kind of retrospectively looking at it, it doesn't really make sense for them to ask, well, what did Bardock do to beat this guy? Because like Gas is infinitely more powerful now than he was when Bardock beat him. That's a good call out. Um whatever bardock did then i mean but then again they're stronger as well so you know maybe if they do what he did then and them being stronger than him whatever i guess Mm -hmm. it could be figured out Mm -hmm. it's manga so i'm not going to put too much logic behind it Mm -hmm. um but my assumption is that bardock had another form and that he probably went into i believe what happened is we got like somewhat of a kaiju battle i think bardock turns into a great eight and he fights gas. Now I'm really kind of jumping out the window with this one, but that might just be because that's something I probably would want to see. Yeah. Um, because that's the only thing I can really seem to buy as far as you know, these people are concerned and what Bardock could what Bardock could have done in that scenario, you know what I'm saying, to to beat uh an opponent this formidable, especially back during that time. Because that's, you know, that was a while ago. Yeah. And to supplement what you're saying, too, or at least to uh, to add on, right? I just said the same thing twice. But if you take our knowledge of Saiyans from back then, they really didn't have much other than their base form and great ape. So it's it would stand to reason, just based on what we know, right? It would stand to reason that all right, if, if Bardock had to kick it up another notch, like, it would make sense that it's great ape, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it has yet to be revealed, but I think your theory has some legs to it. You know, I think it's valid, 100%. Appreciate it, appreciate it. Um, um, yeah, man, I just thought that, I thought it was a, I thought it was a good chapter. I thought that, uh, I'm, I'm just, I want to see what's going to happen next, you know, in yeah. the following chapter, like, how are they going to be able to try to turn this around? And, you know, are we going to get some explanation about Bardock and what Bardock was able to do? Um, I, I think something else um, that was kind of on my mind is like, and I, I was talking to Matt about this yesterday, and I remember like noticing this as I was uh, reading, but all the heaters have a similar headdress. and Well, basically similar jewelry. I'll say jewelry because if you look at Alec, he wears it around his waist. Oh, hold on. I do want to point something out real quick, too. Go ahead. The placement of the horns that are now coming out of Gas's head are the is the same placement of where the horns were on the headdress he was yes. wearing prior. Yes. Good call out. Good call out. Um, 
meaning like it it, it kind of like mimics and resembles like the the headdress right mm-hmm. um and like i was saying like Alec wears his uh around his waist like kind of like a sash or a belt if you will uh oil wears hers around her neck right and then the fat dude also <laughs> So bad just calling him fat dude because i can't remember his name but it was probably like some type of energy pun right his name was probably some type of energy pun um but he wore his around his neck too and then uh matt pointed this out that gas had the headdress and he had one around his waist yeah he's wearing two he's wearing gas two has two on. two restraints right so it makes mm-hmm. me think and especially uh from the fear that the 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 two were shown at the thought of gas liberating his inner nature they're saying like no, when we do that, we lose sense of ourselves. So that mm-hmm. makes me think, do all the heaters have like their race? I don't know if they're if the heaters represents them or is that the name of their race? Um, but do right. all of them have the ability to like go broly, go berserker, right? For one, it will they do that in this arc for two, right? Why is LX so chill? Um, he is just like Matt was telling me this uh, yesterday, right? Like he's been super calm and unaffected, nonchalant this whole time. That's a problem. We still don't know why they're all so willing to follow this dude. And like, there's just there there are just quite a few questions swirling around Alec and his leadership, and why they are all ready to die for him uh, when it comes down to it. Um, but yeah, like if they all have the ability to go berserk. And then another thing I noticed too while reading this chapter is at this point, gas has gone uh uh internet or liberated his inner nature, right? Can't distinguish between friend or foe. Oil and the other guy try to stop him. And or I don't know if they tried to stop him or if he just went toward them, but he hits them. And if you look at the next panel, they don't take any damage really. Which also makes me think, how strong are they naturally? Like, there's something about the heaters where, yes, they were like planet brokers, right? They were the middlemen between Frieza's army. You know, the Saiyans were a part of Frieza's army, right? Frieza's army uh, essentially destroying all life on the planets and then the planets being sold. The planets being sold part, like, that's where the heaters come in, right? Let's not forget that they were planet brokers, but they oftentimes make it seem like Frieza wouldn't have been a problem for them if they had to like get their hands dirty, so to speak. Um, I'm not going to probe that too much, but I just think it's something to consider like what's their power scaling like and why are they so confident? You know, and they- the power scaling is definitely something to consider because they all are wearing this power limiter. Yes. It wasn't just gas. Like gas if they all just let their, go. their yeah. hitter. He's yeah. the one for them. If they all let go, how much of a problem would they be? Um, it's kind of like what I'm getting at, right? But, right. you know, like this whole arc opened up with, you know, Granola seeking his revenge. But it's like from the get-go, the heaters have always been confident. They have never not been confident. You know what I mean? Yeah, like that's true. Their, their actions, their demeanor, like not just Alec, like Oil, the whole crew. They've like gas right out the gate it's like do you want me to destroy this individual it's like no bro chill chill like he has never not been confident in his abilities i i'm i'm just hyped for next month then when it comes down to it i'm hyped for next month this last chapter of super i was like a little bit like uh, i kind of want this granola versus gas thing to be over because i wanted our saints to come off the bench but this chapter 
my opinion swayed a little bit. Um, oh, and then shout out to Monaito healing Vegeta only for that to like not make a difference. Uh, <laughs> Man, <laughs> like, has just shot through the dynamic entry on, on my boy. The panels around that sidekick that gas threw into Vegeta's chest, like Goku and Monaito were still looking at where gas was. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. And by the time they realized, like, like gas and Vegeta were like a hundred yards away. Matt pointed this out, right? Would you say like Goku had to fly? Right? He had to. He had to literally power up and fly <laughs> over to where they were. Like that was just wild as hell, man. Man, bro had to take one. It was terrible. Oh, and before we get, um, did you want to shout out Bryce? Oh yeah. So you know when we was, uh, I was shout out to Bryce by the way. I was talking to him about the chapter. And he was saying that he got those Super Saiyan 4 vibes as well from uh, from Gas when he kind of did the calm down and, Ascension. you know, being able yeah. to, yeah, ascend and, you know, having darker circles under the eyes, even though yeah. he kind of has, has it a little bit in the beginning before he even has that form. But, right. you know, uh, to anybody who uh, who did, who was brave enough to watch, <laughs> you know, GT, brave enough to go through GT like we were, uh, <laughs> That was part of how they got to um that was part of how they got their Super Saiyan 4 transformation is mm-hmm. they awakened and then they were able to like calm themselves down and get a hold of themselves. So yes, yes. Um, yeah, man. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for our weekly manga roundup. Uh let's move on to combat sports. Yeah, man. Uh combat sports. So Last night we had uh last night being Saturday, uh January the 22nd, today the time of this recording being January the 23rd. Uh we had UFC 270, which was headlined by uh Francis Nganu versus uh Surreal Gan for the unified heavyweight title uh for the UFC. And we also had uh, a show showtime boxing or show box card rather uh last night for uh the main event being for the featherweight title between gary russell jr and uh mark masego mag sale sorry mm-hmm. mark masego um and they fought for the wbc title uh the wbc featherweight title last night now just to uh point this out for those of you who are uh, unaware featherweight in boxing is different from featherweight in MMA. Featherweight in MMA, uh, for those in the know, is 145 pounds. Featherweight in boxing is like 125 pounds. Mm. That's the biggest difference. It's huge difference. So just want to point that out. I mean, also to that to that note, right? Welterweight in MMA is 170. Welterweight in boxing is 147 pounds. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's two totally different worlds. So, like, uh, a UFC featherweight would fight a boxing welterweight because their weight class is about the same. Uh, But anyway, so we'll jump into the UFC. So uh, the fight we had opening the card for UFC 270 was uh, Trevin Giles versus Michael Morales. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, all, all I can say is this fight, neither one of these guys was getting paid by the hour and they fought like it. Uh, Trevin yeah. Giles 
comes in right away, putting a lot of pressure on uh, Michael Morales, just just Wobbled in his face. Right out the gate, actually. Yeah, he shoots a, a good right hand right down the middle. But what was weird, right, especially just given if you've ever watched Trevin Giles fight before, after he caught Michael, he grabbed him. Mm-hmm. And it was odd because he forced a grappling exchange when he had already hurt him with his right hand. And, you know, I mean, had him kind of a little bit out on his feet, obviously not too much, but by grabbing him, he gave him that opportunity to kind of clear, clear those cobwebs and get his head back together. Mm-hmm. And, um, he did. Once the, <laughs> and he did. They eventually, they separated and there was a, another exchange. And this time, Michael Morales lands the right hand. They both threw the right hand at the same time, but Morales got his head off the line. And Trevin Giles was, you know, uh, in all respect to him, but just to be fair to the technique at the time, he was kind of wildly throwing that right hand. And mm-hmm. uh, Morales just shot it perfectly like a laser right down the line, twisted his head. You know, DC even said on the commentary, you know, anytime a guy makes you touch your shoulder with your chin with yeah. a punch, that's not good. And yeah. um, Michael Morales did what Trevin Giles didn't do when he hurt him. He didn't let him off the hook. Uh, until the referee told him to let him off the hook and that that uh you know that was the story of the first fight trevin giles uh loses to a tko in the first round and michael morales was uh after getting that victory moves on to 13 and 0 right uh, also the thing i meant to note was this fight was at 170 pounds well to weight it's a welterweight bout and i think another thing to note too like trevin giles just moved up to welterweight for this bout right if i'm if i'm not mistaken right mm-hmm. yeah yeah um, no he actually was moving down travel was moving right down, right you're correct middleweight yeah uh and there were like a lot of hopes associated with him moving down because he looked like physically speaking he looked good uh in in preparation for the fight um yeah. trevin giles has been a heavyweight at one point So the hell of a move. (laughs) Yeah, man. So to be able to cut down to that, you know, that's an impressive thing. I just wanted to point that out. Yeah. Um, It's like the opposite of our boy, uh, the prototype, Jay Collier. (laughs) Oh, man. um, But I was going to say my thoughts on this fight. Um, I was surprised as well that Trevin Giles wanted to force the grappling exchange, especially if you consider... um, Morales's pedigree like he was like a freestyle or like a national wrestling champion had a quite of a boxing background and like he has two parents uh who are both like judo black belts so it's like Morales is going into this with quite the martial arts pedigree so and you know having a strong grappling background like I was surprised Trevor Giles would want to uh take it there but same thing like especially that that opening jab to the right hand that wobbled Morales. It, it sent Morales across the octagon, right, mm-hmm. to the fence. And like you said, Giles went up to him, but just ended up kind of getting underhooks and overhooks as opposed to just, bro, just light him up. Um, but, yeah, it was – I feel like Giles, even after that that failed grappling exchange, because uh, – what did I put in my notes? Uh, there were a few parts where I was like, does he just want to get a finish in that sense? Because he was holding on to a few like choke attempts that Morales did a very good job of defending against and was mm-hmm. putting 
Giles on his back and in an awkward position where instead of leveraging the technique, he was really just burning out his arms. But even okay. that, when he when he found himself on the bottom, he got back up to his feet, took it to a stand-up place again, and he showed that his jab was still a problem. Cause let's not let's let's not make any mistakes here. Like he was still landing that jab and it was stiff, like it was a stepping jab, you know. Um yeah. it was it was a problem, but like you said, right? Like Morales timed it perfectly when Giles was on that right hand. He caught it over the top, wobbled him, and wobbled him again. Um, mm-hmm. and then it was just it was just a wrap, you know. Um, yeah, no, it was it, like you said, like they were not getting paid by the hour. They were not getting paid by the hour. No, man, they weren't. Um, and then continuing with that, the next fight we had was a, mm-hmm. a bantamweight fight, a bantamweight bout with Cody Stamen and Saeed Nurmagomedov. Now, I know the, the last name is a buzz name, but they did it confirm on yeah. the broadcast that Nurmagomedov, this guy, Saeed Nurmagomedov, is in no way related to Habib. Uh, it's just a common name, apparently, in Dagestan, or at least common enough that this guy had it as well. Right. Um, again, these guys are not getting paid by the hour. Um, Cody Stamen said initially, uh, I, I thought this was a, a pretty important thing. He said in the pre-fight that his goal was to get in this guy's face and to, you know, give him a bunch of different looks and, you know, ultimately walk out of there with a finish. And that happened, but it happened kind of reversed. Yeah. Uh, which was, it was actually, it was really kind of just impressive to see because Cody Stamen is pretty much what he, what he just told you is what you're going to get if you fight Cody Stamen. Mm-hmm. He's coming for you. He's, mm-hmm. you have, you don't have to guess what he came to the building to do. Um, uh, and he comes in, presses forward, and he's putting a lot of pressure on Saeed. And what I thought was really impressive was like, Saeed wasn't phased by the pressure at all. At all. The, the, like, he was coming forward and Saeed wasn't even, he didn't even look bothered by the pressure. He just threw his feints and he was throwing a lot of really, really intricate up and down punching punches and kicks. Very technical. Very technical. Very like technical. spinning back fists, some hook yeah. kicks, some side. It was, it was beautiful. In all very honesty. technical, very quick. And then he, uh, well, you know what, I'll, TJ, you're the jiu-jitsu guy. I'll let you explain what he did. So what mm-hmm. happened was, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Stamen was essentially kind of looking for a takedown the whole time uh, going into it, like especially as uh, Nurmagomedov, like you said, was like throwing those strikes, like those beautiful up and down combos, right? Yeah, once but, the pressure wasn't working, that's what he had to go to. Yeah, and the thing is that as Stamen went for like a double leg situation, right? So, uh, listeners, if you are, if you're, if you're at this part of the podcast, we assume that you watch uh, combat sports. You're watching MMA. You're watching. We're just boxing. gonna assume you know. Yeah. So you know, double leg, you go after both legs. But what um, Nurmagomedov did, which was like a ridiculous reversal, right? The leg that Nurmagomedov had that was closest to Stamen. There's going to be one leg that's close and one leg that's far, right? Nurmagomedov essentially kind of threw that leg behind him, but not just behind him, in between uh, Stamen's legs. It's almost like he was trying to take his hamstring and kind of like hook it to like Stamen's quad. As he had that going, he also had grips over Stamen's like armpits over the top, right? 
And what he did in judo is known as an uchimata, but basically it's like <clears throat> a way to counter the person who's throwing you, right? So it's like on Stamen's takedown attempt, he ended up getting reversed. It, uh, you know what? It's like it's like Nurmagomedov hit him with the uno reverse. That that's the simplest way to to, to put he it. He hit right? him with a uno reverse. He hit him with the uno reverse. Man out in 47 seconds listen like so after he caught him with the uchimata folks like stamen tried to switch it over to a single leg but the beautiful thing about uh nirmagomedov's like grappling and his wrestling and i guess that's like a trait that all dagestani fighters share right like Mm -hmm. he caught he caught stamen's chin immediately and wasted no time even though stamen still had his one leg in the air he wasted no time in cinching a guillotine Right. So he went from grabbing Stamen's chin to cinching the guillotine. And he was like, oh, you got my leg? Fine. But fell backwards, rolled Stamen onto his back. And he was rolling with Stamen too. So it's like, as they're rolling together, it's just getting tighter and tighter. Honestly, I wouldn't have been surprised if Stamen tapped like mid roll and the camera didn't mm-hmm. catch it. Right. And so I thought it was just going to finish like with uh, Nirmagomeda finishing the guillotine from the mount. But it kind of, I think there was like a little bit too much energy going into it. So he kind of finished it sideways. But it mm-hmm. was so tight that Nurmagomedov didn't even have to worry about like, you know, taking one of his legs to control uh, Stamen's lower half. It was just like Stamen tapped. It was, it might have been the fastest finish of the night, at least on the, the pay per view card. I didn't see the prelims. But yeah, man. Uh, that shit I mean, was nasty. look, man, 47 seconds. You got a man, got him out. Grand opening, grand closing. <laughs> um. Right. Right. <laughs> Uh, the next fight we had after that, um, we had uh, Michael Pajera. Yep. I, I struggle with the I struggle with the Brazilian name. Oh, Michelle, Michelle Pajera. Michelle Pajera. Yeah. Uh, versus Andre uh, Falio. Fialio. Yeah, Ooh, I was like, I was names. like listening to like them pronounce it. I was like, let me just write this down real quick. All right, they got some names on them. Uh, yeah. This fight was also held at welterweight. Um, it was a three round fight. This fight was entertaining as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, usually if you know anything about uh, Michelle, he's a super entertaining guy, but he's recently kind of reeled himself in a little bit, not yeah. a lot, um, but enough where he's has a bit more structure to the way that he fights and to the way that he competes. Um, and with that, Andre, uh, how did you say, please say his name one more time. Fialio. Fialio. He was coming in also making his UFC debut. Shit. What a, what a person to debut against. Right. Um, and you know, he was coming in pretty much trying to get his first win and to get his first win on the UFC banner on the main event, on the main card of the first pay-per-view of the year. It's a big spot against the guy who's you know known to really get a fans their money's worth if when they come to see him fighting in cage mm-hmm. well in that first round uh andre fialio he comes from a pretty heavy boxing background yep. very pedigreed boxer and um immediately closes the distance on michelle it's putting a lot of pressure on him i mean a lot of pressure on him and uh just not giving him room to do any of the things that he likes to do and he's finding some success but not as much as he would if he wasn't being pushed on his back foot and i mean Mm -hmm. the movement is constant Mm -hmm. and um you know he was kind of clip him here clip him there but never get anything clean off on uh andre just from andre's head movement and just his constant pressure as well 
And Andre was exhibiting a very good, very snappy, very reactive uh, jab, jab yeah. in the right hand. And at one point, he actually was able to time Michelle trying to dive in on him with a jab. Yeah. And he pushed him all the way back to the cage. And his nose pretty much was bleeding very profusely after yep. that punch, uh, pretty much for the remainder of the fight. Uh, and that pretty much is like kind of how first round one went. You know, it was it was a I would call the first round pretty close. Um, but I think some of the action from Fialio, just some of the jabs and the pressure, I gave him that first round. Yeah. Um, same. Michelle's corner also said that he lost that first round and yeah. they were like, you're going to have to pick it up. And he all I'll tell you is this. Michelle Pijeta listened to his coach. Yeah. Um, that second round, he was. Different. A man on a mission. Yeah. He was a completely different guy. Um, something he had that was working for him really well. And they called this on the broadcast. And even if you watch him fight, he does this very well. So he does a front kick very, very well. That Throws that front was toe red. kick. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because of it, it it's a hundred percent because of the explosiveness and, and and the unorthodox nature of how he, fights, he kicked him across the octagon, man. <laughs> yeah. But this guy wild. bounces and he's on his toes and stuff constantly. And he just, he shoots that, that front toe kick, like a jab almost mm-hmm. it's right under that elbow, right into those ribs. And it pays dividends for him. I mean, even in that first round when he was losing, he was getting that kick off. Yeah. Um, and his offense was really starting to work. The body work was starting to pile up a little bit on Andre in that Side second note, round. Not to cut Go you ahead. off too, like um, in your Muay Thai, that front kick is known as a teep and is uh, mm-hmm. like loosely translated means foot jab, just to supplement what you said earlier. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> um, and yeah, he's hitting him with that that front kick. And, you know, he then he was starting to get the hands in there. You know, he likes to do that push off the cage and press in with like a four to six mm-hmm. punch combo. Mm-hmm. Um, he really just started opening up in that third in that second round and was doing all of the things we know him to do. This guy threw a rolling thunder kick, landed yep. it. Um, yep. raised him with a roundhouse kick, threw some head kicks, threw some kicks to the body. A lot of really good combinations. You know, I never noticed how much, um, but it, I guess this makes sense for a guy like him. I never noticed how much he uses jab. He uses his jab when he's doing combinations. Once yeah. he was getting Andre uh, Filio on his back foot, he would use the jab to kind of get Andre to shell up. Yeah. And then he would throw combinations once he once his uh, vision was obscured, which I thought was really good. And he was always mixing that up, whether it was head or body. Yeah. Um. I I personally would have like wanted to see him just be a man on a mission going to the body. But I also have to remember that, like, there are a lot of factors. It's not as simple as just striking because he has to worry about grappling and things like that. Um, yeah. The other thing that he started using in that second round that I thought was really helpful for him was he started kicking Andre in the legs. Yeah. Um. So between just the leg work and the body work, he was really starting to get to Andre and he was able to actually open Andre's eyebrow up in that second round with some of his striking. I want to say early on. Hands open. Yeah, very early. He, I mean, it was five minutes of pure domination. I don't know if he was given a 10-8 on the scorecard, but they almost could have given him a 10-8. I I don't think it wouldn't have been ideal, but I would have been able to hear argument for sure for that second round to have been a 10-8. Yeah. Uh, I think I even wrote in my notes that like literally Fialio got saved by the bell at the end of round two. 
Yeah, at the um, end of round two, he was definitely saved by the bell. Michelle was like, he threw everything and yeah. the kitchen sink at him, picked it up and threw it at him again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then that third round. Slugfest. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, both guys were pretty much around a piece. And we saw, honestly, we saw most of what we saw in the first round. And then halfway through, uh, Michelle just took over again. You know, yeah. we saw Andre trying to put a lot of pressure on him again because Michelle was also throwing a lot of strikes in that second round. He's yeah. throwing a lot of a lot of strikes. Yeah. So the belief was that he would be really exhausted. Yeah. And Andre just immediately shot out like a cannon, tried to put a lot of pressure on him uh, in the beginning of that third round, uh, throwing a lot of hands. Uh, he didn't really utilize a lot of kicks. And, you know, TJ, you made a good call out about this earlier when we were speaking about the fight. Yeah. Um. You saw kind of later on that Andre Filio doesn't his game isn't very complete, at least in terms of striking. And again, right. maybe it is, you know, as far as we know, this was his first one on a big stage, just like the biggest right. stage he could have been on possibly, right. you know, right. um, it's certainly the biggest stage he had been on prior to that. And. Um, he just he wasn't really throwing a lot of kicks, he threw some sort of reactionary kicks rather in like that third round, but. Michelle picked that pace up on him kind of halfway through that third round. And, you know, he got the, he was able to entice him into like a nice little slug fest for like the last 10 seconds of the round. But Michelle well even got the better of, of that. Night. Yeah. Yeah. They was, he was trying to get the fight of the night. And I felt like Michelle even got the better of that. And, uh, you know, he was able to walk away with a decision. And, you know, I think it was a good win for him to also answer some of those questions about his gas tank. You know, for yeah, he to, maintained that pace the whole time. Yeah, once he picked that pace up in the second round, that was pretty much what it was. And he never stopped bouncing on those toes and moving never, around. Never. Naturally, he slowed down a little bit. I mean, shit, it was 15 minutes. But right. the guy never really, his pace never really Dropped. dampened after yeah. that second after that second round. He pretty much kept that pace going. Um. So, yeah, that's, you know, did, did you have any thoughts about that, uh, um, Did you have any thoughts about that round? No, I mean, you pretty much about that fight. You pretty much covered what um I wanted to go over, but there was one thing I wanted to talk about too in terms of Pejera's like, like just sheer control over his body. Now you remember too, uh might have been toward the end of that final slug face where they were like trying to stand and bang. He does a flying knee and mid-flight turns it to a fake and throws a punch while in mm -hmm. the air. Who yeah. does that shit? Like, yeah, who the, does that the same shit? Same guy that who wild. does a backflip every yeah. time he <laughs> yeah. <fights> somebody. Right. <laughs> right. But it's like to have that much air awareness and like control over your body when you're not connected to anything, Matt. Like, he was in the air. <laughs> you know, yeah. Like, he had already jumped and just like, decided like, to pull that knee back. Exactly. This wasn't like, oh, he jumped off the ring and like made a few jams. No, like he was already in the air and switched it to a punch. You know, like that's. That's pretty crazy, and like, who knows what the future holds for this man? But like, shit, I'm, I'm down to watch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that, that was wild. Um, that was that was my final thought. Like, I think, but actually, you know, before we go into co-main and main, um, I think you should bring up uh, something that you had mentioned to me in terms of well, or maybe we can bring this up uh, toward the end of when we when we're done talking about the UFC card. But mm -hmm. uh, just to touch on like, yeah, like Andre Fialio had that boxing pedigree but like after round one it was soon apparent that that was not enough 
um right like just just specializing like that was not enough to meet the challenge that was uh michelle pejera right like mm-hmm. it, it feels like uh fialio might be like the last athlete of his kind where it's like you can just come into an mma fight and really just specialize in one thing right and that isn't like to be fair like he went the distance off the strength of his boxing right but aside from that first round it was very one-sided afterwards um mm-hmm. i don't know man that, that was my final thought and i thought you had made a really good point and if you want to make that point now i'm all for it if you want to make that point toward the end i'm still all for it but uh, you had I mean, well, really I mean, good. it's just what you said. It was just like, you know, I think we just got to the point where the, um, a person that's just purely a specialist, the sport has just kind of surpassed that, mm. you know, for at least as far as MMA is concerned. Like, guys can't just be like, everybody has their base, right? Everybody has their base. Everybody has like that one area where they're like the strongest. And it's it's obviously, you know, it's what you'll fall back to. People go back to what they know all the right. time, right? right. And um it's just one of those things where he was, he was approaching MMA. It was, you know, they, I mean, they even made a note of this on the broadcast as well. It was just such a contrast in styles, you know, you don't, I, you probably couldn't find a more unorthodox guy at 170 than Michelle Pierre. And yeah. you couldn't find a more textbook striker, especially in terms of hands than Andre F- uh, Fialio. So yeah. Um, I just feel like the guys have to be able to bring everything, especially when they get to that level uh, of the UFC, because we're now talking about guys in the world. These aren't just regional. These aren't just, right. you know, you know, like, yeah, think about this. This guy flew from another part of the world and you flew from another part of the country or, you know, wherever your part of the world is or what have you. But that's right. that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the best fighters in the world. And when it comes to that, you know, I think the game has just kind of surpassed people who um, are specializing in one thing and aren't really as adept in this or in that. Because what we see is all the people at the top are all people with very complete games. Yep. That I mean, that's just pretty much what it comes down to. And the people who don't have those games that are as complete or aren't close to that, you know, they suffer for it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Uh going after that, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna transition over to the co-main, or unless you got something else that you wanted to I got nothing else to say, bro. Uh going into the co-main event, uh, we have for the flyweight title was Brandon Moreno defending his title against uh the former champion Davidson Figueredo. Um, you know, Brandon Moreno's uh Mexico's first champions first mexican born champion for those who yeah. be like oh you know kane velasquez like you know but kane was born in america yeah he's mexican champion for sure he's first mexican champion not the first mexican born mm-hmm. um he's fighting davidson figueredo who pretty much was the guy that was breathing life back in the flyweight um that you know it's pretty much the guy that was breathing life back into the flyweight division after uh demetrius johnson exited uh the ufc uh, you know, the guy's like been fighting like a powerhouse, you know, he just just one of those guys that walks in with dangerous and reckless intent, you know, really could care less. And Brandon Marino's a guy who was in the UFC, got bounced out, came back. And this was the third fight between Brandon Marino and Davidson Figueredo. First fight was a majority draw. Then they had a rematch and Brandon Marino won. And 
then we had the third fight last night, uh, which ends up going all five rounds. Uh, TJ, did you want to kind of just talk a little bit more about uh, the co-main event? Um, like just yeah. kind of how it went. So it was like, to give you guys like a, a high level summary, the way I would have scored that fight uh, to me, first two rounds for Moreno, third round for Figueiredo, um, fourth round was kind of a toss up and fifth round for Figueiredo, right? Now, the reason why I say this is because you go into round one and you're just, you're just seeing like Moreno is the one kind of initiating. Well, I mean, uh, Figueiredo starts using like those leg kicks. And I think uh, those leg kicks ended up paying dividends for Figueiredo down the line. But it's like leg kicks, leg kick, leg kicks. And then Brandon is like letting the hands go early on with some good combinations, good head movement from both of them. And I want to say like Moreno definitely has more of the octagon control and is putting on a lot more of the pressure. Now, Davison did have quite a few takedown attempts. But one thing that we need to highlight uh, real fast is Moreno's takedown defense. This whole fight was impeccable. Like Davison would maybe get to a leg, maybe get to a back, but couldn't do anything with it. And the rare occasion where he did maybe take uh, Moreno down and he was trying to like maybe take Moreno's back, like Moreno was quick on his feet, quick to just either in start a scramble or get back into a position where he could break off this clinch, run an elbow, run a punch, whatever. Uh, I thought mm -hmm. Moreno's takedown defense and just grappling defense was like champion level, uh, to be 100% honest. Um, but one thing to be said too, and this is like uh, kind of going along with what Matt said in terms of breathing life into the flyweight division, like unlike other flyweights, Davison has power in his hands. Like, he can knock people out. Um, I think the way Joe Rogan described it maybe was for this match, but like having the nuclear option, right? Like, mm -hmm. like he is a threat. And this is the reason why I like kind of scored the way I did because round three, and I think this is why the decision ended up going Davison's way, but round five, especially, he drops Moreno quite a few times. I want to say at least three times. Once in round three and twice in the last round. Like, you just see him hit that cross and Moreno drops. Now, that isn't to say that Moreno was out, but it's like, it's a visible drop. He gets back to his feet. You know, they continue standing and banging. But, like, for the most part, it's like, yeah, like, Moreno's throwing these combos, but he's not doing anything that can truly, like, he doesn't have the power in his fist to truly knock out Davison. Um, and one thing, uh, like, another thing I'll, I'll note, too, and this is something that... Um, I believe uh, Daniel Cormier called out, right? But mm -hmm. every time Moreno would starch Davison a little bit with either his, like, I'll just call it his magical left hand. And for those of you who saw the fight, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It's like that left hand would just show up out of nowhere, tag Davison in the body or tag him in the face. Um, like Moreno's left hand is no joke. It, it was a problem for Davison. And it's what it is. We'll talk about the decision in a little bit. But um <clears throat> One thing to know is like whenever Moreno would catch Figueroa, right? Mm -hmm. Figueroa would kind of backtrack a little bit, like stop whatever he was doing. Even if he was like mid combo, mid tear, like mid letting the hands go, he would stop, turn his back and kind of run away. Um, and the weird thing is like, 
it got to the point where it was a pattern that the the observer who maybe had no background could see right and it left me wondering why moreno moreno i should pronounce it correctly my bad it left me wondering why moreno didn't try to capitalize on that there were there were too few times i felt where he just kind of let uh figuerito get his feet together get the cobwebs out and like kind of get back into it not that you know he rattled figuerito to the point where he had cobwebs but it's like moreno was putting pressure on him this whole time even if like there weren't enough uh behind the fist to like knock him out it's like he the combos moreno was throwing were a problem now that being said too if you look at the stats coming out of this uh this match significant strikes landed probably edged a little bit toward figurito not that moreno wasn't throwing a lot but like in terms of stuff that was landed you probably had to give the edge to figurito but it just ended up kind of being a back and forth for most of the match. And like I said, significant things that happened, uh, Figueredo dropped Moreno like three times, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when it, but in terms of like overall activity, you got to give it to Moreno. So I was like going into the decision, I'm thinking to myself, and this is what's in my notes, right? If it's a championship fight and there's a decision, in my knowledge, and there, there's been a gap in my viewership of UFC. Like, I wasn't there, like, for, for Moreno's, like, kind of, like, becoming who he was leading up to this fight, right? I wasn't there for that. I wasn't there for the transfer of power from, like, uh, Cejudo to Figueiredo, right? Um, well, from Demetrius Johnson. I saw Demetrius Johnson, Cejudo, the first one. I think I saw their 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 last one, right? But I didn't see I basically did like I knew the flyweight division was kind of going down, but by that point I wasn't like really watching the pay-per-views as much to see the rise of Moreno. Um mm-hmm. but in my knowledge and my experience, usually when it's a champ fight and it goes to decision, it's rare that it doesn't go the champ's way unless the champ was really like inactive, maybe during the championship rounds, right? Or or early on, it's it. I find that it's rare that the decision doesn't go the way of the champ. So when I heard and knew, I was I was honestly shocked. Um, I was honestly shocked. But you know, shout out to Figueroa. He said he wants to run a fourth one. Uh, Moreno was gracious in defeat and said he'd be down to like like uh, Figueroa even said like we can do it in Mexico, right? And like mm-hmm. Moreno said he was down. You know, um, but I thought it was an interesting decision. I'm not gonna say, you know, Moreno was robbed. I'll just say that I thought that was a, a break from the norm of what you usually see. What'd you what'd you think, Matt? I thought it was a good fight. Um, I thought it could have went either way. Yeah. I agree with pretty much for the most part what you were saying. What I think is like, I think what it comes down to where people get get uh I don't even want to say in their feelings, but where hmm, where people get confused and, and and it's fair to get confused on is what are the judges looking for true right and if i'm talking about a five-round fight where a guy got put on his ass three times that got lost yeah yeah just it just on paper if we take all the numbers and everything out right yeah. if i just tell you two guys fought they fought five rounds and over the course of those five rounds one guy got put on his ass three times yeah. Your assumption is going to be that that the guy who dropped him is the guy that won. Yeah. That's um, a good call out. But I also just want to say and this is just like my final thought on this fight at least. Um I don't want to see this fight a fourth time. Personally. That's fair. 
That's fair. I'm I'm personally like, and I don't. That's not to say any of the fights were bad. Um, the first fight is insane. The second fight, the pace is also crazy. Um, this third fight, obviously, these guys know each other now, so they were especially that first round. They were extremely measured. Yeah. Um, and we also saw a big difference in even just in Davis and Figueroa's stance. Yeah. Um, working with Cejudo. Yeah, working with Cejudo and and all those guys, but I just feel like a fourth fight we either we're gonna get more of what we just saw in this third one, um, mm-hmm. and I think people were really kind of hoping for more of that knockdown drag out fight from their very first encounter. I mean, look at the end of the day, if Brandon Moreno's the guy at the top, and if it you know if it's gonna sell, people want to see it. Fine. I mean, it's not like I'm not gonna watch it. I'll right. watch it. It's just it's. It isn't the fight that I want to see, but it is also the fight that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, you know, but I also am like one of those people where if there's a draw, that's a win on both ends. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So technically, you both already have one on each other. And if Brandon Moreno won that second fight, the trilogy to me is done. He got two. His yeah. studio won. Yeah. Y'all went one and one. And then he won the second one too you know i mean it's a sudden death round yeah now y'all fought this third time and he got it back so now y'all both two and two yeah you know so who knows man uh that's all i got on the on the co-main event uh final thoughts i had uh for one like why was sehudo backing figueroa i don't know about the the background there but i just thought it was odd considering like correct me if i'm wrong but like uh ethnically sehudo is mexican right yeah mexican-american so i was like what whatever um so i thought that was interesting um hey, and he, maybe he just had something against brandon moreno Who knows? that's fair that's fair um and then for two i forgot to mention uh something that happened early on in the fight and this uh this is something that i should mention too because i was talking a lot about davidson's power but it isn't to say that moreno didn't have power because there was a moment early on in the first round where um man davidson's leg kick right knocked uh moreno moreno off balance but moreno still threw a strike from his knee and actually yeah, wobbled right yeah wobbled uh figuerito so you know we can't we can't just discount moreno's power in his hands but it's like other than that moment there was no other instance of him truly wobbling uh figuerito um that that's all i had uh in terms of that fight main event time Francis, yeah, the mm-hmm. predator in Ganu, and that's how you pronounce his name, not Naganu or Niganu or whatever. Ganu, <laughs> right? Cameroonian names, when you see the N and the apostrophe, it comes through like a N, like a Nganu versus mm-hmm. Cyril Gan, which is how you pronounce his name in French. Cyril Gan, right? Um, Cyril Gan. Like, <laughs> so that, that actually works out as, as a dad joke. Cyril was gone. That, like, but, <laughs> but, um, but, man. Okay, I want to say it was like mixed emotions going into this uh, because, and we find out why this is the case toward the end during the post-fight interview with Joe Rogan, right? Our boy, the Predator, comes into this two knee sleeves on. And right from the outset, it's like Cyril is doing his thing. The dude is known for like having movement that's very rare, uh, for the heavyweight class, right? 
Mm-hmm. And Francis is looking super unstable and super sluggish on his feet, you know, like not really getting an opportunity to let his hands go uh, at all. Um, and I, I put in my notes, like, I remember, like, grappling has been shown to be a weakness of Nganu's. And then, Matt, when we were talking earlier, right, like, you called it out, too. It's like, well, if you think about it, he was also grappling against, like, Stipe, um, who's, like, a fucking national champion, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard <laughs> to say what's – because, see, check this out. If you want to say, like, grappling is a weakness for Francis Ngannou, right? Yeah. He has submission wins. Like, he beat a guy with a – he got a Kimura. Yeah, off on somebody. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's it's not like we're talking about a guy that can only stop you with his hands. He's just right. a guy. He won his very first fight in MMA with an armbar. Yeah. His very first win ever was yeah. via armbar. He has a triangle choke win. He has a guillotine choke win, and he has a Kimura win. Yeah. So I'm not calling him like some super elite grappler, but you know, let's just also point out. He does have it, and the fact that it's kind of been looked at as something that he didn't have, and I can't, we can't really say that he didn't have something. It's not fair to say, to basically. Yeah, he hadn't had to use it. Yeah, you know, when you have that, as you, as they were saying, and I know you like the term that nuclear option. That's the yeah. fuck I'm worried about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You um, know, if you watch any of his fights, that's what you should be worried about. Yeah, yeah. Uh. But yeah, going into this round, like I think everybody, myself included, was expecting to see some type of explosiveness coming out of Nganu. And mm-hmm. very early on, it's like he's looking wobbly on his feet. And see, he is like, you know, man, you you don't see heavyweights moving like that, man. Like, dude was like very reminiscent of a good like taekwondo or, or karate, like, like sport match. Like he was hitting sidekicks, wheel kicks uh mm-hmm. oh my goodness and his elbows very early on he caught francis with that dip the body down come up above the shoulder from behind elbow um mm-hmm. there was one point in the later round too where he got like a nice lead elbow off of like off of a jab um but you can tell like there's a reason why Cyril is where he is yes his career in the ufc and in mma has been rather short but it's like he has the skills to back up what he's doing. It's it wasn't a fluke. Like the dude, the dude's got some type of natural um, aptitude for this, and he's been putting in the work. And of course, too, you know, like Francis and Cyril were former teammates. You know, they've trained together, so they kind of have an idea of what they can both do. And so it's like, like I said, going into the first round, like it was, I, I definitely felt like I would have given that first round to Cyril. Um, mm-hmm. And you know what? Going into the second round, it looked like it was going to go that way too. But uh, Cyril threw one of his kicks and Ganu got like a high crotch. I don't even want to call it a double leg, man, because it was just a straight up slam. Like something <laughs> like like something you would see in a wrestling like like pro like WWE. Like it was a slam like. And Ganu got this high crotch. Like, I don't – did he lift Sihil above his head? I don't think he lifted him above his head, but it was up there. Head, but he picked it him was up, up there. Remember, these dudes are both like 6'4". It was up there. Slammed him into the mat, right? Mm-hmm. And basically just get kept that top pressure. And it's like, before you know it, we're seeing Ganu use jujitsu. 
Mm-hmm. I was like, what? <laughs> like, like what? Like, and there were a few times, there were a few moments where it's like, oh, is he going to go for a guillotine? Oh, shit, he's going to go for like some type of arm submission. Oh, he's trying to get the triangle choke. And it's just like he maintained that pressure. You have to understand, remember, like I just mentioned, they're both 6'4", but they're also like way over 240 pounds. And if you take rehydration into consideration and the fact that Nganu was on top for a lot of these grappling and wrestling exchanges, mm. dude, you know Cyril was a little gassed out. You know he had like just – if you have ever done any type of grappling art and let's say they, they make you do that drill, it's like, all right, one person's going to be in side control. The other person has to escape. The person on side control has to maintain the whole time. Then you have an idea of how exhausting that can be. Just magnify that times a thousand because you also have to worry about punches and kicks and other mm-hmm. stuff, knees, elbows. So, yeah, uh, Francis is getting like these good, good exchanges. And also, I, I failed to mention too, like he was listening to his corner um, quite a bit. Like they had told him to like to switch up the targeting, like, Yes, we know that there are these circumstances that are preventing you from letting your hands go the way we would like you to. But instead of trying to target Sihir's head, because another thing that Sihir has too, very good head movement, um, they're saying aim for the tattoo on his chest, which mm-hmm. is like one of those situations where, you know, maybe having a tattoo like that that presents a target was not, in hindsight, may not have been like a, a great thing because this was a situation where it was used against him. Uh, Sihir. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, and that's a that's a, ta- a tactic that you hear with with in striking, especially in boxings and stuff right. too. I've heard my coach say that, especially when we're dealing with a guy that likes to dip, just yeah. wants to get their head out the aim way for you the keep in that head. You aim for the chest because that's where the head is gonna go. Yeah. So, uh, and Francis was using that to his to to his advantage. Um, like I want to say in this fight, his hands didn't let go the way they would normally let go. But he did get some good exchanges. And if you look at the, the, uh, the, the post-fight pictures, even the post-fight interview, mm-hmm. Francis didn't really take that much damage. Uh, no, look at even if face. you look at his face. Yeah. yeah, you look at, and it's not that he didn't catch him because, like, dude, there was that jab they kept replaying in slow motion, right? I mean, he caught like, him with a roundhouse kick. Yeah, but like Francis, like, did not did not take that much damage. See, he though, like, had some bruises and cuts. And, yeah, it was it was it was it was oddly one sided, uh, even though it wasn't, but it was <laughs> like you know. Yeah, it pretty much once the once the the differential and grappling was established, that yeah. was the end. The fight and, was pretty much decided with that. Well, although okay, so just to continue, right? Uh, once 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 Ngannou shows that he can get that one takedown, the momentum shifted. It did. It did shift, and we were starting to see like way more wrestling and grappling exchanges coming off of Ganu, and Sihil being a little bit more cautious with some of his striking, but still letting him off nonetheless. Like he, how many side kicks did he catch on Ngannou's body? Like he caught a few, know. dude. He caught a yeah. few. Um, but toward the end, that's when it kind of went pure grappling, and there was a moment where I was like, shit, because Ngannou was in danger. Uh, Sihil had a legit heel hook attempt. If you don't know what a heel hook is, actually, you might be familiar, even if you don't know MMA, because this is something you'd see in pro wrestling. Um, Mm -hmm. Like Hulk Hogan, if you watch any Japanese pro wrestling, you know they use that shit. But, like, Mm -hmm. basically, this is something that can cause a knee injury. Uh, You you wrap your legs around the leg you're attacking, and you get your hands and use the heel of your opponent's foot as a lever. 
What this does is it causes the foot to kind of rotate, uh, I, I want to say like internally, but that ends up putting a ton of pressure on the ligaments in the knee. And it still ends up fucking up the ankle and the heel too, but it's, it's known as a problem. And so Cyril has this heel hook. Dude, you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if Ngannou's limping today. He has this heel hook. And he's I mean, my man was wearing it. two knee sleeves, so yeah, like, <laughs> like he like see he is cranking it, but like Nganu manages to like get his knee past the knee line. So you're really in trouble on a heel hook when someone is able to isolate your hip. If they can isolate your hip and get like like if you think of it as like almost like a if you've ever played tug of war and how you want to get the the knot or the ribbon or whatever across the line. Uh, on your side so your opponent's in trouble imagine that tug of war scenario but in this case the knot is in ganu's knee right if Ooh. cyril or sihil is able to get that knot on his side then he for sure will break that knee right what Nganu did is as he was defending he was able to slip his knee to his side so in terms of tug of war he's winning he gets that knee passed he gets that knee basically safe right once the knee is safe now he can focus on okay how can i get up either back to my feet or get back into a dominant position in terms of my jiu-jitsu or grappling. And he escapes, but then, and this is where I think I yelled in my seat and like joy, because I was like, oh shit, if he does all this only to lose at this point, it's gonna suck. So I thought Ngannou was gonna manage to work back up to his feet and look like he was, right? But instead ends up on his back and kind of in a half guard, full guard situation with Sihil on top. So I was like, oh shit, come on, Ngannou, do something. You gotta do something, you gotta sweep. And what does Nganu do? Use more jujitsu. He sweeps Cyril from close guard onto his back. And he gets mount. He gets mount. So it's like, at this point, there's like, what, 10 seconds left in the round? And that's when the fight ends. Now it's just like, holy shit. Like, for all intents and purposes in terms of striking like Nganu this was not one of his best striking performances um we know what his worst one was like that mm -hmm. the, the fight with Derek Lewis that no one wants to talk about right um but in terms of his evolution and wrestling and grappling this was a sight to behold I did not expect this at all I mean like I said like at the beginning I was like my, my man looks wobbly on his feet right now there were a few times where he was like sucking in big air but it's like he lasted all five rounds like that's another thing i didn't i didn't uh i didn't think about until i said just now it's like he showed he had a gas tank like legit things yeah, were not you know, necessarily going his way this, this, this is, fight you know going into this fight go this ahead is bro. The first this is his first decision victory that he's ever had in his career yeah he went all five rounds and he went all five rounds in a fight where he grappled pretty much for almost all five rounds yeah and uh, really pretty much for four of those five rounds, he had to grapple and show that he still had energy. So, um, you know, I thought it was a good it was a good turnout for for Francis at the end, especially considering, you know, uh, if we're in a world where we're dealing with him having knee injuries and things like that. Yeah. He ACL off. and MCL lost his scholarships. ACL and MCL. Yeah, he lost them. Bro is out here on two bad knees and defended his title against one of the most athletic and sort of explosive and, you know, faster heavyweights of today. 
Yeah. Um, was able to unify the title. So honestly, it was just it was all good on him. I there was no there's nothing else I really can say about his performance. You know, uh, he showed another wrinkle to his game. And if the world we live in now is a world where Francis not only has the nuclear option, like has this killer power, but also possesses uh, a fully developed deep and a real uh, jujitsu game and a real wrestling game, then, you know, the prospect of, of uh, loss for him and really the prospect for a lot of things is kind of more or less just going to depend on his body. Yeah. Because, you know, what else can you do at that point? I mean, we also need to highlight too, like, it's not just the grappling, but within that grappling, his hand fighting. We would be remiss if we didn't highlight how he was controlling Cyril's hands because Cyril did have the threat of that elbow. Like the problem with like Cyril's elbow, especially his spinning elbows and his like reverse upside down elbow or whatever, it's like it can come from anywhere. Like even mm-hmm. in that situation where they're like um, Nganu had his back a few times, you'll notice that Nganu was being smart about shutting down his uh Cyril's right arm. Like he would bear hug him grab that wrist still maintain back control but he was making sure he was like no bro i'm not letting you let that elbow off that's going to be a problem there were a few instances of that and of course Nganu like punching from the back like kind of cutting up uh see his face was just it was a sight to behold like it it was yeah i got nothing else this was just he defended that title um and i think too it was like also a, a bit of a moral victory for him because the whole we have to also acknowledge that gone getting the uh the the interim championship while Nganu was recovering wasn't exactly great timing on the UFC's part like they they brought out that uh interim title I think really fast like really fast it felt like Nganu had just got the title he was trying to recover in there's, I mean, that was basically the beef going into this, right? Um, but I think uh, Nganu, like, not just defended his title, not just showed an evolution, but kind of got, like, some type of uh, vindication uh, mm-hmm. with this, you know? Um, yeah, he and he was able to hold on his belt. Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's all I got, man. Um, last thing, last, uh, last section of the combat sports I want to get into is uh last night we had a showbox card as well um and that was the featherweight title defense of gary russell jr against mark uh mag oh my gosh i'm gonna mess this man's name up again mcsale there we go um mark mcsale is a filipino gentleman who is promoted by his fellow uh cohort and teammate at one point or another, Manny Pacquiao, and he is also coached by Freddie Roach, uh, you know, coming out of wild wild card uh, boxing gym. And he was fighting against Gary Russell Jr. Gary Russell Jr. is a southpaw guy, featherweight fighter, you know, from D.C. And uh, up until last night was the longest reigning uh, champion in boxing currently of the modern era. Um, he had, you know, he had been the WBC featherweight champion for well over 2000 days. I think it was like somewhere around 2,400 days or something like that. Um, now one thing that I will just point out very quickly is that he had been criticized for inactivity, um, where Gary Russell pretty much has only fought 
once a year, every year since 2015. Mm. And with, that was when he won the title. However, uh, last night he lost to uh, Mark Masego, who is a younger fighter than him. You know, the guy's like 26. He That was his 24th fight. He's now 24-0. But that's not to say that uh, Gary Russell Jr. didn't go out there and give it his best. Again, the guy didn't become champion on accident, right? Mm-hmm. Um, heralded guy, but somehow in in the fourth round, he hurts his arm, his right arm. Now, he's a southpaw, so the right hand is his lead hand in boxing. Also, just to point out yet again, um, featherweight in boxing is 126 pounds. Mm-hmm. So he there's uh, an exchange where he goes to throw like a, a right hook, and he pulls away. And I mean, in pain where he kind of, his knees buckle a little bit and he drops his arm. He's like, ah, you know, he very visibly is in pain, but he moves away and, you know, he's able to defend himself. And pretty much from rounds four through 12, he's a one-armed fighter. He's a southpaw fighter fighting an orthodox guy with just his left hand. Um, Gary Russell Jr. showed a lot of really good boxing IQ, a lot of good movement, a lot of good head movement, a lot of good defense, but it was pretty much a downhill thing from that point on because all he could really do was defend and use one hand. Now he used that left hand with great effectiveness uh, a lot because the one thing Gary Russell Jr. does have is speed. He is incredibly fast. Anybody who has seen him fight, you know, there's highlights. If you Google Gary Russell Jr. or if you type his name in into YouTube, it'll try to automatically fill it in with speed. He's that fast. Um, so he was able to make a lot of things happen with that left hand. Ultimately, uh, he wasn't able to come away with the victory. He didn't disclose uh, what the injury was, but he was saying that that arm, if I'm not mistaken, he was saying that the arm was injured prior to the fight. Mm. Um, he lost a majority decision. Two of the judges gave the fight to Masego, uh, Maxeo, I'm sorry, and um, one of the other judges had it as a draw. Uh, this also was like the lowest volume that he had ever thrown. And obviously the decreased volume was because he was fighting with one hand. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, man, it was a pretty big upset uh, considering because, you know, this guy was a mandatory challenger. So it was just, again, expected that he was going to win. And like I said last week, typically with mandatory challengers, the expectation with your mandatory is that you'll just beat them. Mm-hmm. Um even though that's not always the case. And I, I won't say that's typically the case, but especially for like, if your mandatory is a guy that people don't really know of. And this guy was a guy who had some fights, but he didn't have a really big name, you know, behind him. And, uh, you know, what a good win for him. So congratulations to to uh, Mark Maxeo mm-hmm. uh, for winning his first world title and becoming champion of the world at 26 years old, man. He became featherweight champion of the world uh, and realized the dream for himself last night. So yeah. that was very good for him. Um, the final thoughts I want to put on that is just, uh, I hope Gary Russell Jr. can come back, you know, soon. Hope he deals with whatever that injury is and, you know, possibly he can get, try to get a title fight again or, you know, just get in the mix because, you know, the guy was a champion for a reason. Whether he fought once a year or not, he he didn't get beat. Yeah. So that this is his second loss. Uh the only other person that beat him was uh Vasily Lomachenko and that was back in twenty fourteen. So, you know, we'll see. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with Gary Russell Jr. going forward. 
you know, he's still a young guy. He's 33 years old, yeah. you know. Um, but he's also accomplished a lot in his career. You know, he's a uh, uh, three times. He's uh, went to nationals three times, won a uh, won national title twice as an amateur, won Golden Gloves. You know, um, took a bronze in the in the World Championships. You know, again and became world champion eventually as a professional boxer. Comes from a boxing family. You know, he has brothers and stuff that all fight as well. So it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, going forward. Um, and if you don't mind, TJ, I'm going to transition into our last and our final section, which is uh, our topic of the week. And our topic of the week is what is your favorite arc of Dragon Ball? Now, by Dragon Ball, we are referring to Dragon Ball from Dragon Ball to Z. We're not going to include Super since Super is still going. Oh, what, so, dude? That was my favorite arc. I'm kidding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Funny guy. Um, <laughs> So yeah, TJ, if you don't wanna, if you don't mind, go ahead. What what was your favorite art of Dragon Ball? I had a toss-up, but I'm gonna just go with uh King Piccolo arc from Dragon Ball. I mean like okay. uh, Kid Goku. Uh mm-hmm. I, I said that because the other one I would have chosen might you may have chosen it too. Um or it may have been like in in at least in your top five, and I know it'd be for a lot of people, but the reason why I like the King Piccolo arc is because it's somewhat of a turning point in the the Dragon Ball manga because this is fresh off Goku winning his first tournament against Tien Shin Han, right? Uh, Tien, Tien Shin Han, right? He beats Tien. They're out celebrating. Uh, Krillin, uh, after after dinner, like Krillin goes back to the Tenkaichi Budokai location because they they lost, like they forgot something or whatever. But Krillin ends up getting murdered by King Piccolo's underlings, and it like kicks off this whole arc. But it's like this might be the first like significant, significant death uh, to Goku. Um, this is the first time you see Goku like absolutely pissed, like to the point of rage. If I recall correctly, like it's not quite Super Saiyan, not quite Kaioken, but this is the first time I I want to say I saw his hair like spike up. He was so angry. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Goku, like 12, 14 years old, but um, it definitely drew a line and it became a turning point for the manga, in my opinion, because yes, you know, obviously you can get the, the Dragon Balls wish somebody back to life, but like, I don't think the Dragon Balls were really used back then that way. Um, it was just, I, I like that arc. And like Goku has to level up and this is where Goku starts training with Kami um, to then defeat the scourge that is uh, King Piccolo, right? Well, mm-hmm. I mean, he starts training with Kami even like to, to to deal with like Piccolo Piccolo, who was like Demon King Jr., right, at the time. But um, I want to say that's one of my favorite arcs, in all honesty. How about you, Matt? Um, this was a, a, a bit of a tough one for me, but which I, I know you might be surprised by. And I think I might actually surprise you with the arc that I picked. And um, the arc that I picked was uh, the Saiyan Saga. Yeah, um, I can see that with you. We've had talks about this one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for me, not the Saiyan Saga as it relates to Raditz, but the arrival of Vegeta and Nappa. And I say this because 
Z, first of all, what I like the, the most about Z before I get into this specific arc, because it's still a pretty early arc in Z anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing I will say that I like the most about this is stakes are higher now. Yeah. Like when other Saiyans are introduced and these are Saiyans that seemingly are more powerful than Goku and understand their powers more and they don't have any of those weaknesses that we saw with Raditz like getting grabbed by the tail. It just, it, it was different. And they couldn't even get to the main guy. They couldn't get past Nappa. Yeah. And, you know, them waiting on this promise of Goku, like, you know, the whole thing where it's like, all right, well, we're going to wait for Goku to get here. You guys got this amount of time. Napa gets restless and he's like, well, Vegeta, you know, like, what am I going to go do to him? Like, what do you mean we're going to wait for this guy? Go entertain yourself. They have to stand there and watch Napa. The first thing he does is he jumps in the sky and he rips a plane in half. <laughs> he, just, he doesn't grab it. He just cuts right through it. Yeah. He blows up a city. He just... He starts terrorizing local towns. Essentially, this guy just decides to start terrorizing the planet until Goku comes back. And they're all forced to do nothing because none of them are a match for him anyway. And this guy is taking orders from the little guy. Yeah. And that guy is very clearly stronger than him. Yeah. They got that feeling about Vegeta. And just, it was just the stakes of all of it, man, because it was like, Goku lost that fight, man. Yeah. Goku took an L. Like, you know, where they ended up having to get this man back in that ship, you know, and, and you know, obviously, uh, we know what, what this all eventually becomes with Goku and Vegeta and, you know, Vegeta coming back and rejoining the team. But I just thought it was like the stakes were raised because these guys are planet busters. Like the Saiyans, yeah. they just come to collect the planet and pass it off. And, you know, it, it a lot of seeds were was sown uh, in that arc and a lot of things were, well, not seeds were sown, but a lot of seeds were planted in that arc that we do see come, you know, kind of come back around full circle when they go to Namek and mm-hmm. even in the ways of uh, like in the Boo Saga, even in the Cell Saga, you know, like things from this kind of reverberate, you know, we never see Napa again, but that was the point in which Vegeta starts to become a more important character because He's the, um, in Z, he's the first reoccurring villain they have in Z. Yeah. Nobody else comes back in Z. You know, Raditz is dead. You know, Raditz, and and that was the other thing. It was like, the first time they saw a Saiyan, it took the sacrifice of Goku to beat one Saiyan. And this right. guy, if you grabbed him by the tail, it stopped him. You know, Piccolo grabbed Napa by the tail and Napa almost punched his brain out the front of his head. It's like, <laughs> yeah. It's one of the most insane panels you'll ever see. If you've never seen that panel of Napa punching Piccolo on the back of his head, it is crazy. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I almost I almost went with uh I almost went with the cell saga. Yeah, that was gonna be that was why it was a toss-up. I was gonna put yeah, cell saga too, but I was I like almost that. went with the cell saga, but I um I went against it just because of you know it's some other stupid shit that happens in the cell saga that I just absolutely do not agree with personally. <laughs> so right, you know. Um, but yeah, man, my answer would be the the Saiyan saga once, you know, when they deal with Goku, I mean when they deal with Nappa and Vegeta. Yeah. 
Oh, that's solid, man. I appreciate that. Um, well, I think that's gonna do it, man. Yeah, um, this is gonna wrap up this episode of us uh doing the Now Mind You podcast. That was a stupid ass way to end that, but that's what <laughs> I'm gonna say. And I'm gonna ride it out too. Be proud of myself. Um, Hell yeah, dude. Next week, uh the manga that we're gonna cover is gonna change just a little bit. Um, we're not changing in terms of titles, we're just changing in terms of what titles we're gonna cover because of releases. Mm-hmm. So um, we will be covering Sakamoto Days. We will be covering Aishiman. Uh, we will also be covering Jujutsu Kaisen as well as the Jimeno Ipo. Next week, we are not covering uh, My Hero Academia because they are on hiatus until February. Uh, Kaiju Number 8 is also on hiatus until February. And as you guys already know, and in case you haven't heard it in the past or if this is your first time hearing us, in hearing us talk about manga and the manga that we cover super is the only manga that we cover on this show at least so far that's a monthly yeah so we will not be covering super again until february the 20th or post february the 20th whenever that you know when you know next month so Correct. uh next week what you can expect from us is sakamoto days aishiman jujutsu kaisen and hajime no ipo as well as a brand new topic of the week and we also are going to cover the combat sports from next weekend as well yep TJ, you got any any words, anything you want to leave everybody off on? Uh, shout out to Cameroon. Uh, <laughs> ethnically, I am from Cameroon. My parents are from Cameroon. I was born here in the States, but uh, I am ethnically Cameroonian, legit African-American. So big shout out to, to the homeland, the motherland. Hey, hey, shout shout out, shout yourself out again. You're first generation. African-American. First generation African-American. So, you know, shout out to the homeland. Uh, last night was awesome um shit yeah and then uh just in general too um thank you to everybody who listens we appreciate you and you know give us a follow at now mind you pod on our social media and yeah we appreciate you matt i got nothing else man yeah give us a follow on at now mind you pod on pretty much anything you can pretty much find us there you can follow me on at matt hambrick m-a-t-t-h-a-m-b-r-i-c i'm on twitter i'm on instagram um and it believe it or not i'm on tiktok now so <laughs> i'll let your boy uh y'all can find me on instagram i'm on other platforms but i'm gonna just keep it to instagram to make my life a little simpler but uh, uh, uh at tus4 underscore skate that's t-u-s-s number four underscore s-k-a-t-e um hit me up there and of course you know the now mind you pod instagram and Oh, we like as of this recording, we've been available on Apple Podcasts too. So our streaming platforms as of right now, we got Spotify, we got SoundCloud, and we have Apple Podcasts. So whatever one, whichever one works for you, give us a listen, follow us, stay along for this ride. We appreciate y'all. And if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, notice the young five stars. If you listen to us right now on Spotify, notice the young five stars. If you listen to this on SoundCloud, give us that like. Give us that like, baby. If you listen to this on Anchor, I don't know what you do on there, but give us, give us the good stuff. Something. Yeah, give, give us, us that good, good thing. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, man. So we appreciate you. Thank you guys for listening so much, and we will holler at you guys next week. Peace, y'all.